The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available Pro Power Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In 1994, Kurt Cobain should have felt on top of the world. Nirvana had just released back-to-back number one albums. He's headlining the festivals and arenas he had dreamed of just a few years before. He has a beautiful baby and a wife who is a rock star in her own right. Critics loved his music worldwide, but despite all that, he was self-destructing. He was imploding, turning down tours, fighting with bandmates, blowing off practices, and mostly doing a shit ton of heroin. He'd wanted to name the album In Utero, I Hate Myself and Want to Die. Now, he did have a dark humor for sure. But he also really did seem like he hated himself and wanted to die. Why? He was so good. So good. Let's try to find out what Kurt was all about. What was bringing him down? Learn how he went from homeless to a huge success in a phenomenally short amount of time as we suck on some grunge on today's Northwest Smells Like Teen Spirit Alt-Rock Drop D edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy, happy Monday, and hail Nimrod, time suckers. I'm Dan Cummins, and thanks for listening to The Suck. Thanks for listening to Time Suck. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by the podcast Crime and Sports. Are you fascinated with crimes? Of course you are. Everyone is. Do you like sports? Doesn't matter. Who gives a shit? Sports matter to crime and sports as much as KFC mattered to John Wayne Gacy. It just gives context and also really drives home the old saying of, it didn't have to turn out this way. I love crime and sports. All right, just, just every episode is just some athletes rise and then horrible, horrible fall, you know, because athletes are criminals sometimes too. We oftentimes don't hear about them because they have a silver haired middle-aged white man exploiting their talents, covering their tracks at every crime scene. Comedians James Petrogallo and Jimmy Wisman host crime and sports with a new story and it's fantastic every Tuesday. They approach each one with humor and sarcasm because most of the time the laws and courts don't treat uh, them seriously. So why should we? James is relentless in his research and will find facts about criminal athletes even their moms don't know. You know, like how James Fly Williams allegedly had aggressively nasty anal warts. It's true. How did he find that? Find out by listening to Crime and Sports. 
Can you even say that in a commercial? Probably not. But I just did. James and Jimmy uh, run them down, uh, these, these crimes, uh, from birth to present day. These criminals, you know, whether it's death, incarceration, or they're back on the streets to reviolate. Uh, heads up, they're always going to reviolate. Uh, find Crime and Sports on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe everywhere podcasts are found. And uh, these guys are not just amazing podcasters. They're, they're friends of mine, and they're so good at what they do. I highly, highly recommend uh, you checking out Crime and Sports. Uh, it's just, it's just fascinating, man. Every episode you're like, no, please go. Come on, dude. Don't, don't throw your life away. You have a promising career. Oh, you motherfucker. <laughs> but it does make you feel better about yourself. Listening to every episode. You're like, well, at least I didn't, you know, do that. At least I'm not dealing crack after having a promising NFL career. Oh, fantastic. That's crime and sports. So be sure and check them out. And, uh, and today on time suck, a big format change. A uh, big format change. Uh, the most consistent critique I feel like the suck has received, uh, other than my mush mouth. Uh, concerns the time sucker updates. You know, basically that jumping into them, you know, kind of makes it take too long sometimes to get back into the meat of the episode, the actual story. So uh, problem solved. The updates are not going anywhere. Don't worry, but they are going to be relocated within the episode. They're going uh, from the front to the end. All right. Not sure why I didn't think of that sooner. This way, if you like them, and I hope you do, great. You, st- you can still hear them. You just listen to them at the end after the narrative's over. And if you don't like them, well, fucking, you can skip it. Okay. <laughs> going forward, it's going to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, a few minutes of greetings after the, after the little open there. Some thank yous, some quick announcements, and then bam, back into the episode. Fucking get moving. Then a little teaser for the next episode after the top five takeaways, and then Time Sucker updates at the end. And then I don't feel rushed doing them. I'm not worried about like, oh my God, how many minutes is it taking to get back into the story? It's going to be great. Uh, it, you know, starting this episode. Uh, also, going back to the original Time Suck timeline for a bit. I, I forget how much you guys love uh, staying traditional on some of this stuff. I get attached. So i got feedback there. Uh, Russ Wurst- uh, Wurstel, great job. He did a great job on the Time Suck timeline song. Uh, but instead of replacing the intro and outro permanently, what I'm going to do is make it a revolving door. Some weeks, it's going to be the original one, you know, that you're used to. Other weeks, it'll be, uh, you know, perhaps a, a Time Sucker showcasing their musical skills. And then back to the original. So if you have any uh, Time Suck Timeline little song you want to throw out there to kind of tease your band or just have some fun, you know, just send it to Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com and, uh, and we'll throw it in for an episode or two. A little musical chairs, uh, you know, uh, thing going on there. Sounds fun to me. So that's those announcements. Now here's these ones. Tickets are on sale for the first ever live recording of Time Suck. I'll be at the Hollywood Improv. Very excited for this. In the lab, Thursday, October 5th. Show starts at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. Doors open at 7 p.m. All right, so 7.30 showtime, 7 p.m., doors open. Tickets are only 15 bucks. Please, 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 if you're in the L.A. area, come support this event if you can. I'm definitely nervous about doing my first uh, uh, live time suck and, and hope it's a good showing. Uh, ticket link will be in the episode description on the podcast player and uh, timesuckpodcast.com. And thanks, uh, Time Suckers, again, for the recent iTunes reviews. Man, so nice, so flattering. The subscriptions, recommendations for others to listen. You're really spreading the suck each week, and it's going to allow me to do some cool things coming up by the end of the year. Uh, thanks for getting those uh, Time Suck sticker packs that you can uh, buy at the, at the shop or get free with uh, some sweet exotic animal skin t-shirts, other purchases. And uh, yeah, man, I hope to see those uh, you know, spreading around, st- sticking on some stuff. And then I'll put the uh, pictures up on Instagram. So, And please come out to Irvine Improv this week. Uh, hear my new show Thursday through Sunday and to the Omaha Funny Bone next week, Thursday through Sunday. More shows coming up. Just added a Seattle date in October. I'll be at the uh, Parlor Live Comedy Club in Bellevue one night only, Sunday, October 15th. After doing some shows in Portland, Oregon, at Helium, October 12th through the 14th, more tour dates coming up. Spokane, uh, lots of other places, Grand Rapids, Madison, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and follow The Suck on social media, at Time Suck Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, slash Time Suck Podcast on Facebook for cool updates and stuff. And finally, thanks to Hunter Bloodsworth, uh, Brian Salen, Sean Davis, and any other Time Sucker I missed for requesting Kurt Cobain. So let's suck on him. 
Nirvana, man. Uh, they weren't around for long, but they sure did make an impact. Oh, and by the way, if, if it sounds a little different today, I'm recording this uh, from a hotel instead of my normal little studio at home because it just didn't work out in the schedule to get it done uh, in the little studio. So, But it feels right with Nirvana, man. It feels grungy. <laughs> it feels like it's supposed to with these guys. Nirvana, man, they left a huge impact on me. I just started you know, my freshman year of high school uh, when, I, when I bought Nevermind. It had just come out, and it fucking blew me away. I, I had not heard anything like it. You know, it was one of the last tapes I ever bought. I mean, Side B. I remember flipping it over to side B, which kicks off uh, with little territorial pissings, and it ripped my goddamn brain out of my head. Slapped it around, threw it back in my skull, a little different than it was before. So raw, powerful, so fucking angry. It's like, who were these guys, man? Who can drum that hard? Is he singing or is he screaming? I just moved from Riggins, Idaho to go live with my dad in Vegas for a bit, and it was a rough transition, man. It was, it was not easy. Uh, I was not fitting in. Uh, I didn't have any friends. You know, uh, I wasn't popular at all. Like I, like I was back in Riggins in a little tiny school, which was much easier to be popular. I was 15, uh, misunderstood. I was pissed about my parents' divorce and just angry in general. And listening to Nirvana, it, it just felt like Kurt Cobain had uh, given me my own soundtrack. And uh, listening to it today, man, the music holds up. God, does it hold up. The guy was a musical genius. He was also, uh, as you're going to find out, extremely troubled. So let's get to know him. Let's try and find out why a critically acclaimed, iconic rock star, recent millionaire, and new adoring father would kill himself at just 27 years old. And yes, conspiracy friends, uh, we will address the possibility of his murder also, don't you worry. So let's suck on the life and times of Kurt Cobain, get to know the man a little bit with the big old Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. February 20th, 1967. Kurt Donald Cobain is born at Grays Harbor Community Hospital in Aberdeen, Washington, to first-time parents Don and Wendy. He could spend, uh, he'd end up spending about three-quarters of his life within 10 miles of this very hospital. His parents lived in nearby Hoquiam, just a few miles away, also on the harbor, a little town of a population of about 10,000. Aberdeen was a blue-collar logging town with a population of just under 20,000. Biggest town in the area of Grays Harbor, Washington, which is a, the sixth busiest harbor on the west coast at that time. Logging was huge. The area was home to 37 different lumber pulp, or other types of sawmills. That's a lot of sawmills if you're not a big uh, sawmill aficionado. Uh, life was down and dirty, man. There was 27 taverns in 1967 in this little place, and there were several brothels until the 1950s. Life magazine actually once called Aberdeen a hot spot in the nation's war with sin. Just a rough, down and dirty, blue-collar northwest logging town when Kurt was born. I get it, man. Riggins, where I grew up, was a, uh, you know, for most of my childhood, was a teeny tiny version of this. It was also a little logging town. And uh, down and dirty as well. Uh, Kurt was the first grandchild on both family trees. You know, Kurt's parents were young, getting married July 31st, 1965, when his mom was only 17, still in high school. So they actually uh, got married in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where I, where I live now, which was kind of famous in the Northwest for a long time for this little place called the Hitchin Post. And Idaho's kind of relaxed marriage laws. And basically, you know, if you wanted to get married, fuck it, 16, who gives a shit? Come to Coeur d'Alene, get married. Uh, Don worked at a gas station when he stayed at home, carved wooden sandals out of driftwood to sell to local Native Americans. No, she didn't do that. She stayed at home, and she worked as a mom and housewife. That other stuff didn't make sense on many levels. The first couple years of his life, uh, Kurt is the center of his parents' world, man. Music was all around him. A lot of extended family members played musical instruments, and the family would get, a, you know, get together for big jam sessions. By all accounts, first few years of life, fantastic. Uh, September 1969, less than two years after Kurt's birth, the young couple moved out of their rental in Hokium and buys their first home in Aberdeen for $7,953. Oh, my God. Man, to buy a house back then. Uh, they lived in a neighborhood called Felony Flats, though. 
Uh, it's still called Felony Flats. It's a, it's a two-story, middle-class house, middle-class neighborhood. Uh, Kurt would later call it white trash, posing as middle-class, which makes sense with the Felony Flats description. And after watching some documentaries, checking out some YouTube videos of the general area, yeah, probably a little sketchy, you know? But still, good old, you know, uh, middle-class, lower-middle-class uh, uh, American childhood continues. And then in early 1970, uh, the uh, Don and Wendy have a second child. Kurt's younger sister, Kim, is born on April 4th that year. 1971, Kurt starts kindergarten. Little Kurt. Starts uh, at the age of five. He's already uh, showing some amazing artistic talent. You know, he has uh, great art, you know, great like drawing and sketch skills. His parents actually would drive him to Seattle uh, around this time, set up a little booth for him, and he would paint caricatures uh, of tourists down at the Pike Place Market where they they throw the salmon and stuff. Uh, Cobain's caricatures, Come As You Are. Uh, He'd actually use the title of that, you know, little booth he had for the song, uh, the same name years later. You, you can see uh, some of Kurt's early caricatures uh, in my ass because that, that's where I just pulled that part of the story from. Now, he never did caricatures in Seattle, but he was artistically gifted at an early age. That part's true, okay? He was painting. By the time he was in kindergarten, his room began to take on the look of an art studio. Classmates remember him having an incredible ability to sketch anything. I always admired that talent, man. My friend Carter Wilson was like that. He could sketch anything really well. I, uh, that's actually where I got my son's name from my old buddy. But uh, I tried to be that kid. I wanted to be that kid. Kyler was one year above me. I tried to be that kid in my class. And, and, and I kind of was. I was like a low-rent version of that kid. Like classmates would ask me for sketches in early grade school, but you would always get one of two things because they were the only two things I could, I could draw. You get a muscle dude or a monster. You know? So I was like, oh, you want, you want a picture of yourself? Yeah, no problem. No, sure, no problem. How about, uh, you know what? How about you as a monster? How about you as a monster with fangs and stuff? Uh, no, okay, you don't want, that's fine. Not feeling that. Uh, I, oh, wait, how about you? How about you, Michelle, as a mustachioed muscle dude? No? Well, I'll, I guess you're just going to have to take your patronage somewhere else then. Uh, Kurt loved music as a kid. Uh, he could beat out melodies on the piano without lessons. Around the age of six or seven, he bought his first record, Seasons in the Sun. By Terry Jacks, by the incomparable Terry Jacks. <laughs> Never would have guessed that is his first record. Check this out. What a random first album. I think, I think my first uh, uh, tape was, uh, was Billy Idol's Vital Idol. Maybe. That's, that makes me sound pretty cool. But it also may have been, I might have bought them on the same day actually, uh, Wham!, I'm not sure, they're, I'm not sure they're the title of the, the Wham! album, but it was the one that had Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Wake me up before you go-go. I'm not hanging around like a yo-yo. It also had a careless whisper, if you recall that one. I'm never gonna dance again. Guilty feet have got no rhythm. Yeah, yeah, so that one not as cool. But you know what? Solid fucking song still. I'll, I'll stand by him. Uh, March 1975, uh, Kurt plays Little League for the first time, which makes his sports love and father Don super happy. Kurt was, uh, he was okay at baseball, but he never ended up really loving it, really getting into it, uh, and, and really didn't get in any sport, which bummed his dad out because that's all his dad was about. Don was very into sports, and uh, their kind of disagreement on sports being cool or important, uh, you know, would uh, kind of just cause this gap in between them. Kurt was an artsy little kid. Don didn't understand that. Don was really into sports. Kurt didn't understand that. And, uh, and that bummed Kurt out because, you know, he wanted his dad's approval. And what boy doesn't? But he didn't want to do what Don approved of, you know, which was sports. Also around this time, uh, while Kurt was in grade school, Kurt was given Ritalin for three months due to, due to being a hyperactive kid. Uh, it didn't really seem to slow him down, so he was taken off of it. Uh, Kurt would later blame the euphoria he felt on Ritalin as a kid as a precursor to his, uh, like, drug abuse later. Thinking about how it was his, you know, the best he felt as a kid, and when life got harder, as he got a little bit older, you know, he wanted to go back to the simplicity of childhood, and he wanted to feel that euphoria again. He wanted to do drugs again. Uh, honestly, 
Uh, this sounds like a bullshit excuse to me to blame something other than one's own free will, poor choices for drug abuse. You know, I don't know if that's me. Uh, UCLA research has shown that children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder are far more likely than other kids to develop serious substance abuse problems as adolescents and adults. However, uh, studies also found that taking Ritalin specifically uh, to treat ADHD does not seem to increase the odds of future drug abuse uh, whatsoever. February 1976, a week after Kurt's ninth birthday, uh, the end of February 1976, Wendy tells Don she wants a divorce. Fuck. Happy, carefree childhood over. Uh, a few days later, on March 1st, Don moves out to go live uh, with his parents uh, uh, in a little trailer in Montesano, a town of a few thousand, a few miles from Aberdeen, just another little town apart of Grays Harbor. Uh, little Kurt's devastated, you know. Dad just moved down. His childhood is thrown into turmoil, uh, turmoil that will fester and twist inside of him and later propel him into being uh, the you know musical mascot for disillusioned youth across the world. Don slips into depression, denial, following the divorce, uh, thinking Wendy's going to change her mind, and she does not. Wendy actually quickly shacks up with a longshoreman uh, who makes twice as much money uh, than Don. Uh, Wendy, uh, from a lot of stuff I read, you know, that was very important to her, income. Uh, and not trying to paint her as like a, you know, a, a, a superficial person. I mean, money's important to a lot of us, but uh, it seemed to be that was like the big beef with Don. That he was not as ambitious as she would like him to be. Uh, and her new guy was apparently uh, an asshole, in addition to a longshoreman, who hated Don very much. One time, <laughs> I read this in several articles, when Don's uh, driver's license was mailed to Wendy by mistake shortly after the divorce, uh, this new dude literally uh, wiped his ass with it, like wiped shit on it, and then forwarded it to Don in the mail. And miraculously, Don uh, did not head over to his ex-wife's house and just fucking killed them both. <laughs> wow. You know, like, whenever I hear about some crazy domestic dispute in the news, some like, you know, woman shoots husband, mistress, and then herself, or ex-husband kicks down ex-wife's door and kills ex-wife and new boyfriend, you know, I never think it's good. I'm never like, yeah, good for them. But I do, <laughs> but I do always wonder, like, why? What, what led up to that? You know, usually it's mental illness or some premeditated sociopathic shit, you know. Usually it is the perpetrator's fault. I, I will say that. Be very clear about that. But I also feel like, you know, a couple times, it's got to be like a normal person who just got pushed too fucking far. Right? Like in this case, like if your husband's driver's license comes to your house by mistake and, and, you, and you and the dude you're shacking up with, uh, you know, use it to wipe your asses with it or, you know, or one of you wipes your asses with it and then forwards it to him. I'm not saying it's okay for him to then come over to your house and kill you both with like a shotgun. But I do think the ass wiping should be taken heavily into an account, you know, into account uh, during the sentencing. You know, like, you know, the judge, like, uh, you've been found guilty of two counts of first degree premeditated homicide. I was going to sentence you to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But then I heard about the ass wiping thing that set you off. Now, uh, I'm not saying it's okay what you did, but I am going to sentence you to 10 years instead. And you're going to be eligible for parole in, uh, uh, how about three? Not cool what you did, but, but, uh, those motherfuckers kind of had it coming with the butt wiping shit. That's, that's bullshit. Uh, June 1976, uh, Kurt, uh, not taking the divorce well. That June, Kurt writes on his bedroom wall, I hate mom, I hate dad, dad hates mom, mom hates dad. It simply makes you want to be so sad. You know, hearing this bummed me out, man. Uh, especially as a, as a kid whose parents divorced when, you know, I was about the same age as Kurt and also having, you know, uh, uh divorce myself that my kids had to go through. Uh, so definitely a bummer, but, but you can also see Kurt's future lyrical ability in that refrain, right? It simply makes you want to be so sad. I don't feel like that's how the average nine-year-old is going to write about the, their parents' divorce. I feel like it would normally be something like, I hate mom, I hate dad, they can eat poop and boogers, hope they eat, hope they do eat some poop, and I hope some boogers too. 
You know, I think I think it'd be more along those lines. Uh, 1976 would be the one of the worst years of Kurt's life, man. He was so upset about the divorce, he ended up going to the hospital because of malnutrition. Uh, this might have been the first sign of a stomach condition that would plague and haunt him for the rest of his life, or uh, he might have just been so emotionally upset he couldn't keep his food down. Uh, three months after the divorce, Kurt went to go live with his dad in Montesano. Uh, his sister, Kim, uh, stayed with mom, Wendy. And then in the winter of 1976, he transferred to a new school in Montesano, uh, a smaller town of about 3,500 people uh, with a much smaller school, about a third of the size of the school is at, in Aberdeen. Uh, it was easier for Kurt to be a lot popular there. He immediately became a, a favorite of the girls with his blonde hair, blue eyes. And this, this resonates with me very much, man. My parents got divorced when, uh, when I was like eight, third grade. Uh, I wanted to go live with my dad, but wasn't allowed to. My dad stayed in Anchorage, Alaska, where we'd been living for a few years. And then my mom moved us back uh, to where I was born, back to Riggins, Idaho, where there was about 20 kids in my class now. And I went from not having, you know, too many friends. I don't remember being very popular at all in Anchorage when I was little. I, you know, I had like one or two friends or whatever. And so I went to a few schools there. I remember one school just right after, like kind of during my parents' divorce where I was just not uh, happy. I think I, cried. <laughs> I think I probably cried a lot in school, which makes other little kids, you know, not want to be your buddy necessarily. And, uh, and then I go to a school where there's like 10 kids in my class in Riggins, you know, or 20, 10 boys. And I became way more popular than I ever would have been if I would have stayed in Anchorage, like way, way more. And that definitely affects your development. I don't think I'd be a comic today, honestly, if I hadn't uh, went to school for Riggins for, for most of my childhood. It would, you know, I just got a confidence there I wouldn't have got somewhere else. You know, I had that new kid cachet, you know. I had it in a town where you, you might be the only new kid for a couple years. Uh, October 1977, Don meets a woman named Jenny late that fall, uh, the woman he would soon remarry. Uh, she was divorced, had two kids herself. Uh, Mindy, a year younger than Kurt, and James, five years younger. Kurt liked her at first, like Jenny, stepmom, but but also she's the woman who ruined his plan to just hang out with dad. You know, he's, he made some little deal with his dad rather than divorce, like with her, you know, die, dad, promise never get married. You know, and Don was like, okay, and then and then Jenny comes along. You know, so I get his anger there. I also had dreams of hanging with my dad, my sister Donna. She could come, you know, hang out, but that was it. Uh, I didn't see my dad much, you know, the first few years after the divorce, and then when I finally, you know, did see him, he's living with some lady I'd never met. You know, some lady, Julie, and then the next time he was living with a different lady. I'd never met Colleen that he's now married to. And I was, <laughs> I was fucking pissed. You know, what about our time? So I get his anger there. Uh, Kurt visits his mom and sister in Aberdeen on weekends. He hates that. He loves to see his sister, loves, you know, kind of see his mom. But he hates mom's new boyfriend, Frank Franich, a violent man who would break his mom, Wendy's arm. Uh, Kurt witnesses some of the violence between his mom and her boyfriend, and he feels helpless to protect her. So he's got that going on on his mom's side. You know, that's not good. Don's granted custody, full custody of Kurt in 1979. In that fall, Kurt starts junior high. Seventh grade uh, yearbook profile on Kurt reveals that his favorite saying is, excuse you. That was a little twist on Steve Martin's excuse me from an SNL sketch. Uh, his favorite band is Meatloaf. <laughs> I remember having one of those uh, Meatloaf albums as a kid. I think I had a uh, Meatloaf like Bad Out of Hell 2, Return to Hell, some shit. Like oper operatic, opera-like kind of rock. Yeah, Milof, you know, he had some good songs. Uh, his favorite subject is band. He's remembered as a, as a quiet kid at school uh, and a loud kid full of complaints at home. By 1981, friends really begin to notice a uh, 14-year-old Kurt's dark sense of humor. He tells one friend when he was a kid that he was going to grow up, become a musician, become rich and famous, and then kill himself. How creepy is that? Uh, he said he wanted to blow up and then go away like Jimi Hendrix. And I guess he told that to a variety of kids. And uh, he'd also been recently introduced to suicide. Uh, Kurt's great-uncle Burl... Uh, his grandpa's brother on his dad's side had shot himself in the head in 1979, and I guess Kurt would talk about that often. He was fixated on that. And then in 1981, uh, also, uh, he saw a suicide. Um, this is really cr crazy. He was uh, in eighth grade. Classmate Kurt knew at Montesano uh, hanged himself from a tree outside the Montesano grade school. Kurt and two other classmates discovered the body while walking home from school. That's like some stand-by-me shit, right? If you've ever seen that movie or read that uh, Stephen King short short story, 
They ended up staring at it for like half an hour before uh, school officials made them leave. That's got to leave an impact on you, man. I mean, just seeing some kid you, you know or knew, I guess, hanging from a tree. Jesus Christ. Uh, Kurt started smoking weed, dropping acid in the eighth grade. Uh, he went from smoking pot at parties to smoking pot with friends to smoking it daily by himself. Uh, pot itself may not be addictive, but that's true addict behavior, man. Every day he's doing it. Pot became his escape. He also started cutting class regularly by the end of eighth grade. Uh, you know, you go buy weed, raid some, some other parents' liquor cabinet with some buddies. Started spending more and more time alone as well. Stopped doing his chores. Started acting out more and more at his dad's house. Right, he's spending more and more time in his basement room alone, fighting with his stepmom, fighting with his stepbrother uh, and stepsister. Feels like uh, she favors the other kids over him. September of 1981, Kurt starts high school, joins a track team, throws a discus, runs a 200-yard dash, but doesn't show up to the practices, you know, very many of them. So to a few here and there. He also joins the JV wrestling team, but kind of gives it the same kind of half-ass effort. His dad actually uh, uh, ended up walking out during one of his matches when he just lays there and lets the uh, opponent pin him. Uh, for his birthday, his grandpa Chuck offers Kurt uh, either a guitar or a motorcycle that year, and Kurt picks the motorcycle. How weird is that, man? He actually gets good enough with it to earn a spot with the Aberdeen Rumblers, a uh, team that uh, competed in sort of kind of a sort of a precursor, I guess, to the X Games, where uh, two teams of five riders each uh, would wear light body armor and try to knock off other riders uh, with wooden bats. I guess how you'd win is the last team to have a rider, you know, not not get knocked off of their bike with a bat would would win. And Kurt's dad and grandpa, they fucking loved it, man. They loved it. They saw a competitive side of Kurt for the first time. Uh, Kurt actually uh, killed a kid in, in his second match. So his dad was, dad was never more proud. So that was a good moment for him. Of course, that never happened. Well, at what point did you uh, realize it was bullshit? <laughs> was it, please please tell me at the at the body armor part, you were still like, oh, that's weird. That's crazy. I never heard of the Aberdeen Rumblers. It's because it's because they never exist. No, I'm sorry. Uh, Kurt, Kurt, he picked the guitar. Of course he did. It's Kurt Cobain. He played it constantly. Unfortunately, he also fought out with his dad and stepmom constantly, even though he was only, you know, freshman in high school. They kicked him out of the house this year, sent him to live with his grandparents, Leland and Iris. Over the next four years, he would live in 10 different houses with 10 different family members. Uh, his family paints a picture of Kurt around this time as a lazy, petulant, self-absorbed teen. You know, even his sister Kim, uh, you know, she's living in the same environment, but she kind of keeps her shit together. She helps pay the family bills, you know, with her paper route. Kurt's not interested in doing any of that. He doesn't want to get a job. Can't be bothered. Life's not fair. Everything's not fair. Why should you have to do that? Uh, Kurt ends up living with his uncle, Jim Cobain, for a while. His uncle Chuck, soon after that. Numerous other family members. No one either has room for him or they, can, you know, they can't control him. Uh, ends up having to kick him out. Kurt transfers from his high school in Montesano to Aberdeen, uh, where he goes to live with his mom halfway through his sophomore year. J.M. Weatherwax High School. Uh, has 300 students per grade. Three times the amount of kids in Montesano. And Kurt does not handle the transition well. Right? Kurt does not uh, make friends easily at the new school, isn't popular in Aberdeen. He's a small kid, not athletic enough to half-ass it, still make a team. Things are way more competitive. The school is full of cliques. He doesn't belong to any of them. And again, I mentioned this earlier with the going to Vegas. I relate to this. You know, In between eighth grade and my freshman year, uh, I went to go live with my dad in Vegas. I've been living with my mom since the divorce in Riggins, Idaho. Transferred from a school with a class size, like I said, of roughly 20, to a school in Las Vegas that had more kids in just my class, about 650, than the entire population of my town had <laughs> right before huge culture shock and i did not know anyone and uh, i went from being a popular kid in riggins to a kid who had no friends uh, i also grew like six or seven inches in about six months and didn't put on any weight which which did not help i hadn't grown for several years it was a weird thing when i was a kid i was like the shortest kid in my class from about fifth grade to about eighth grade like i mean boys or girls i was tiny uh by eighth grade i was still around i think around like 411 you know somewhere between maybe even 410 52 probably about 100 pounds and then suddenly i shoot up to about 58 59 
I, I only make it to about 110, 115 pounds. Like I was like, you know, the kind of skinny where everyone's like, just eat. And I'm like, fucking I am. I'm eating all the time. Uh, suddenly I get uh, acne, you know, pretty bad. Go from being the star of the basketball team to not even bothering to try out for the team because most of the kids could dunk and would later play in college. And I was used to practicing on a hoop in my lawn back in Riggins. It was, you know, roughly regulation height with very uneven ground. It was fucking terrible. And, uh, and you know, that, that, that's, that's awkward to go through at that time in your life. And it was awkward for Kurt. Uh, Kurt remembers being picked on in Aberdeen. Uh, he dropped out of sports. The only classes he excelled at were a few art classes, basic and commercial art, fifth and sixth periods. I guess he'd mostly just skip school until then. Uh, his art skills did impress his teachers, you know. But other than that, he just wasn't showing up. His, his mom doesn't even seem to notice. His mom was busy uh, uh, shacking up with young dudes. She loved young guys in, early, in their early 20s when she was in her mid-30s. And she was too busy, you know, just uh, just <laughs> just banging it out, I guess, you know, to, uh, to pay attention to, to Kurt and be a parent. Uh, Kurt's mom did embarrass him. She would uh, sunbathe in a tiny bikini in her yard when his friends were over. Uh, she'd buy his friends alcohol, kind of seemed to flirt with them. It was fucking gross. Like, what a dirtbag. Like, the parent who flirts with their kid's friends, you're such a fucking dirtbag. Uh, when she popped up on some documentaries I watched about uh, Kurt, like Montage of Heck, I immediately did not like her. Uh, didn't, really, didn't really like either one of his parents, to be totally honest. His dad just seemed checked the fuck out. His stepmom seemed clueless, and his mom just seemed like a dirtbag. Uh, Kurt, Kurt Cobain also went on to his uh, first concert shortly after heading back to Aberdeen. First rock concert, man. He saw Sammy Hagar at the Seattle Coliseum. Fucking Sammy Hagar. That's one of the first musicians I was into as, as a kid. Uh, I remember one of Sammy Hagar's tapes is the first one I ever shared with a friend. Like, first one I was like, dude, you gotta listen to this. It was the song, uh, I Can't Drive 55. I, I distinctly remember being in, in the basement, putting that in the boombox. I was about six or seven years old, and just being like, man, check this out. I remember my friend started to talk. I was like, no, shh, quiet. You gotta hear this. Like, this is the greatest thing I'd ever heard, you know? Write me up for 125. Post my face and want dead old life. Take my license, all that jive. I can't drive. 55. You'd get that fucking crazy high note, right? Oh, butt rock. Uh, Kurt would call him butt rock too later. Man, is that a, is that a regional term, butt rock? You know, for like the uh, Sammy Hagar kind of skid row, Cinderella warrant, you know, type music. I don't know, man. That's what we call it. Uh, Kurt would later say the Black Flag was his uh, first concert. Classmates would later remember that he came to school, though, wearing Sammy Hagar shirt the next day. All right? So it wasn't Black Flag, buddy. Don't try and rewrite your narrative. All right? Don't act like that was your first concert you went to. It was fucking your butt rock. That's where you started. Fuck yeah. I bet he did have a Hagar shirt. I bet that shirt had some, like, hot chick, hot rock chick just caressing Hagar's hairy chest or something. Man, fucking butt rock. Acid wash jeans, T-top Camaros, punching nerds, peeling out in parking lots. Uh, summer of 1983, Nirvana did see some uh, punk. Uh, Nirvana. I'm calling him Nirvana now. Kurt Cobain. Uh, he sees the Melvins uh, the following summer. Performed for a handful of people in a little uh, Montesano grocery store parking lot. How punk rock is that? <laughs> it would change his life forever, man. He'd later write about it in his journal. This is what I've been looking for. Yep, Melvins blew him away. Crowd was small, but the Melvins' energy was huge. They played fast and raw with an intensity he had not seen before. You know, he soon saw them again many, many, many times. Actually, the Melvins would be very intertwined with his life and with the life in Nirvana, as we'll find out. Uh, he finds out that the Melvins had, uh, had all grown up and gone to school together in little old Montesano, where Kurt had gone, you know, recently. And they were now practicing in Aberdeen, where he was living, just a few miles, you know. Uh, they were all in the same little area there. I can't imagine how, how cool that must have felt for Kurt. Melvins practiced in the back of drummer Dale Crover's parents' place in Aberdeen. Local teens would come watch him, including Kurt. The band called these kids Klingons, a little nod to Star Trek, a little acknowledgement of their clingy following nature. Uh, Kurt knew the Melvin's bassist, Matt Lucan. Matt had gone to school in Montesano, too, uh, about three years older than Kurt. 
Matt would go on later to uh, help form influ- influential Seattle band Mud Honey, uh, and Pearl Jam would actually end up writing a song about Matt Lucan uh, named Lucan. I heard that one. It's a little like one-minute song of theirs. Uh, spring of 1984, Kirk gets kicked out of his mom's house, becomes a homeless teenager. At first, he's uh, sleeping on a buddy's porch. Then he slept in the hallway of various Aberdeen apartment complexes. This type of living would inspire the lyric he'd write later, It Amazes Me, The Will of Instinct. To eat, he'd go to a local hospital, tell cafeteria workers he was grabbing food from one of the patients there. How fucking sad, man. This is a kid who's supposed to be in high school. And he's sneaking food out of a hospital. Uh, Kurt moved back into his father's house after about four months of being homeless in 1984. And he begins really getting into the guitar now, really practicing it for hours and hours down in the basement. And, uh, and then another Cobain suicide kind of depresses the family. Another one of his grandpa Leland's brothers, this time Ken Cobain, now shoots himself in the head, uh, just like his other brother had. Uh, two of his grandpa's brothers now have shot themselves. And actually, his, his third and final brother uh, had recently drank himself to death, which the family felt was you know, kind of suicidal because basically his doctor had told him, if you keep drinking, you're going to die. And he just you know, goes right back to drinking. Uh, Kurt, uh, too far behind in school now to graduate on time. He just kind of stops going, drops out. 1984, after he's dropped out, he, he tries religion, still looking for some meaning. His chaotic, increasingly hopeless-looking life. Uh, his shot on religion lasts about six months. He goes to a Baptist church with a buddy of his, uh, Jesse. Even gets baptized that October. Uh, even you know gets really into it for a while. Starts going to Wednesday night Bible studies in addition to uh, mass uh, or you know uh, the sermon on Sundays. Kurt moved in with his, with Jesse's parents, the Reeds, Dave and Ethel, in September of 1984. Also jammed with future Nirvana bassist Chris Novoselic at this time. He'd met Chris eventually at the and it is Chris by the way. I always thought for years it was Chris. It's actually Chris with a T. Kind of an odd name, right? Chris. Uh, I think he's Croatian. Uh, but Chris, uh, he met him initially at the Melvin's practice space back in Aberdeen. Chris was another one of those Klingons. And then he ran into him at uh, the Baptist church he was going to with the Reeds. So Jesse Reed, Kurt, Chris, all jamming on guitars with the Reeds. Uh, by March of 1985, Kurt is really dreaming of being a big musician someday. Uh, he cuts his finger as a lamplighter, a little restaurant he worked at in the area, as a dishwasher and a busboy. He has to get stitches, and so he panics and he quits his job. Tells a friend if he hurts his fingers and can't play guitar, he'll kill himself. Right, with no job, no ability to play guitar for a little while, Kurt uh, withdraws. Uh, he convinces his buddy Jesse to skip school with him, stay at home with him, get drunk, do some drugs, and the Reeds find out and kick him out. Right, He's homeless again. He ends up working uh, part-time as a janitor now at Weatherwax High School. How fucked up is that, man? This is the school he was just at, the school he dropped out from. Right, Huge low point for young Kirk. Can you imagine that? You're going to high school one year, the next, you're mopping the floors of that high school when you should still be going to that school. That's got to be so depressing. Uh, man, uh, left him very depressed, and he quit after just two months. And, uh, yeah, his future did not look bright in 1985, and he's bouncing around in 1985, and he finally uh, ends up in a $100 a month studio apartment with uh, Jesse Reed until he gets evicted, lives with a former teacher for a while, crashes with the Melvins here and there, gets arrested for doing dumb teenage shit like malicious mischief, begins drinking in public, you know, gets arrested for that too. Starts, uh, starts a band called Fecal Matter in December of 1985 with a few friends. Has Dale Crover on bass, Dale uh, being the drummer for the Melvins, and Greg Hokanson on drums. He writes uh, songs with names like Suicide Samurai, Spank Through, and Buffy's Pregnant. They make a crude demo, but the project doesn't last long. Fecal Matter broke up without ever playing a single gig. Uh, versions of some of those early songs, though, would show up in Kurt's later Nirvana releases. Uh, that August, Chris Novoselic's girlfriend, Shelly, who Kurt knew from high school, uh, talked Chris into letting Kurt crash in their van for a little bit. Uh, Chris listened to uh, Kurt's Fecal Matter demo, thought Spank Through was a pretty good song, and was interested in forming a band with him. Uh, September 1st, 1986, uh, Wendy, Kurt's mom, loans Kurt 200 bucks, and, that, that, and uh, he gets a place near her in Felony Flats, Aberdeen. It was enough to pay his first month's rent, you know, at some, some shitty little house there, no fridge, no stove, has a rotten roof, two living rooms, two bedrooms, single bathroom, 
odd constru- constructed house. You know, it's just two blocks away from his mom's house, and uh, they're getting along a little better. She'd bring him food from time to time. He could go to her house, use the laundry room, and he's living there with uh, Matt Lucan. Matt Lucan from the Melvins moves in, and because of that association, there's going to be jam sessions all the time at Kurt's house, man. He's also doing a lot of acid around this time, according to some friends, uh, roughly five times a week. That's a fucking terrible amount of acid. I've only did it once, and that was enough for me. Uh, Nova Selleck remembers, uh, you know, Kurt at this time just being a total mess. Doing acid all the time, getting drunk in the middle of the day, but also binging on music. Also, you know, able to jam with a variety of different musicians. Uh, one, one, you know, grouping would feature Chris Novoselic on bass and a local drummer, uh, Bob McFadden. Another lineup featured Chris on guitar, Kurt on drums. Uh, Kurt and Chris formed one lineup, I love this, called The Sellouts, and they would only rehearse Creedence Clearwater revival songs because he, he thought if they got good, <laughs> got good enough of those, they could play like local, local Aberdeen taverns. Oh, my God. How, how crazy would that be if that's what would have went for him? If instead of forming Nirvana, they would have just formed an Aberdeen CCR fucking cover band called The Sellouts. Uh, another lineup uh, featured Kurt on bass, uh, Kenny Loggins on banjo, uh, Bo Jangles on harmonica, and Michael motherfucking McDonald on bagpipe. They called themselves uh, Beelzebub's Butthole, and they would only play at midnight under the light of a full moon. Wait, 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 wait. No, that, that's weird. That's weird and not true. Uh, no, another real lineup was called the Stiff Woodies, <laughs> and, they, and they played a high school party full of kids who ignored them. Man, fecal matter and the Stiff Woodies. If Beavis and Butthead would have existed this time, Kurt would have been all over them. Uh, Kurt Christ and a drummer named Aaron Burkhardt began playing in another little lineup, an unnamed group, which would be the very beginning of Nirvana, and they'd play a few times a week. March 1987, Tracy Miranda starts dating Kurt in the beginning of uh, 1987, his first real girlfriend. Uh, yeah, by that March, uh, Kurt had the beginnings of a girlfriend, the beginnings of the band, you know, that would later become Nirvana. Uh, they played their first gig. Nirvana still didn't have a name. They were considering Spina Bifida, Whisker Biscuit, <laughs> Whisker Biscuit. <laughs> Jesus, that reminds me of junior high. Designer drugs, uh, poo-poo box, gut bomb, and puking worms. Among my what if Nirvana would have just stuck with whisker, whisker biscuit? <laughs> that is such a ridiculously junior high slang term for vagina. Oh, there's no way. Even with the same music, there's no way they're getting as big with the name Whisker Biscuit as Nirvana, right? Because you'd be you'd be fucking embarrassed. Like what grown up? You'd be embarrassed, man. Hey, man, have you heard Whisker Biscuit? Like what? What the fuck? Whisker Biscuit. No radio station is going to be like, check out this next track from, Whis- from Whisker Biscuit. Oh, my God. They, they played their first gig. It was in Raymond, Washington, a little town of 3,000 loggers, roughly an hour from Aberdeen. It was an unpaid gig, and 15 people showed up. The first song was Downer, uh, one of the first songs Kurt wrote, a song that would show up on Bleach. Uh, those at the party don't remember him ever raising his head or pushing his hair out of his face, and then no one clapped at the end of the first song. Man, talk about humble beginnings for the band that would just rule the rock world in a very short amount of time. Uh, they wouldn't play in front of another audience for months. Kurt leaves Aberdeen, April of 1987, moves in uh, with his girlfriend, Tracy, and Olympia. And that's a good move for him. Olympia was a super eclectic, little, you know, uber-liberal, artsy college town. That's where Evergreen College is, like maybe one of the most liberal colleges on the face of the earth. Uh, Tracy lives right next to downtown, super good place for emerging artists to live. Kurt worked on his art there and his music while living with Tracy. She dotes on Kurt. She was a few years older, nurtured him in an almost maternal way. She was a supportive mother he never had in Wendy. In the documentary uh, Montage of Heck, she comes across as a very, very sweet woman, actually. Uh, as of spring 1987, Nirvana still hasn't settled on a permanent name. Uh, they play a few more parties in early 87, and then in April, uh, perform on a college radio station called KAOS in Olympia. Tracy passes a tape of the performance. Jim May, the booker of a theater in Tacoma, Washington, uh, called the Community World Theater, and they perform there at the theater their first non-party gig as uh, another name, Skid Row. I love that. 
They didn't realize there was already a band named Skid Row, uh, fronted by Sebastian Bach, complete butt rock. Uh, and there was about 20 people in the crowd for that one. Uh, Nirvana's still not making any money at this time. The band almost breaks up because of it. Uh, Chris is working two jobs for a while in Tacoma. He's working as an industrial painter and also as a Sears clerk. And then the original drummer, Aaron Burkhart, uh, he takes a new job as the swing shift assistant manager at the Aberdeen Burger King. And he can't play with them anymore because he can't make practices. How, fuck, how fucked up is that in hindsight? Dude, you were in Nirvana? Oh, yeah, man. I was their first drummer. I could have been Dave Grohl. What happened? Well, uh, Burger King called is what happened, and I answered. And you know what? No regrets. I'm a manager now. So, <laughs> headbutt, high five, up top. Uh, December 87, Dave Crover, uh, an old drummer for the Melvins, was back in town from California, and Kirk reaches out to him so he could record some tracks from a demo. So now they got Dale Crover on drums. January 23rd, 1988, Chris, Kurt, and Dale Crover, uh, they drive up to Reciprocal Recording Studio. In Seattle, a now legendary studio uh, where Mud Honey, Mother Love Bone, Soundgarden, other Seattle favorites and legends had already recorded. Uh, in less than six hours on January 23rd, 1988, they had recorded and mixed nine and a half songs. That's right, there's a half in there because the reel of tape ran out halfway through the last song and they didn't have the 30 bucks for an extra tape. That's how poor they were. A lot of the songs from Bleach were originally recorded that day. Uh, they played the Tacoma Theater again that night in front of about 20 people again, and they actually get paid this time. They actually get paid. They get 10 bucks in gas money. A month away from his 21st birthday, uh, Kurt Cobain is now technically a professional musician. And uh, I guess he uh, supposedly just kind of rubbed that $10 bill around in his pocket the whole whole drive home. How adorable is that? I still remember making my first money in comedy, man. 25 bucks for doing five seven-minute sets in Spokane, Washington over the course of a weekend, five shows, at a little place called the, the Season Ticket uh, Sports Bar. I think they called the comedy club inside of it laughs. It was just a separate room inside of a sports bar in the parking lot of a thrift store. I was 23 and it felt fucking amazing. <laughs> uh, Kurt was now obsessed with his new, still unnamed band. Yeah, actually, I want to thank Nick Tyson for forgiving me that uh, first sets. That was the guy that got me started. Uh, but uh, Kurt, yeah, he's obsessed. He became convinced that uh, getting on a, a video on MTV would catapult the band to fame. And to help make that happen, he convinced his bandmates to play in Aberdeen Radio Shack in early 88. A friend shot the performance on a low-budget camera that had very special effects, kind of like shitty effects. And when Kurt watched the tape, uh, he realized, you know, not quite MTV quality. And so did the rest of the band. And then Crover left and went back to work with the Melvins. <laughs> I love the delusional optimism of youth. Just, guys, I have a plan. MTV videos makes bands famous, right? And we want to be a famous band, right, guys? Okay, then. Well, we need to make a video then. And look, I got, a, I got an in. We can shoot it for free at Radio Shack. Think about it. They already have all the cords. They have all the adapters we could ever need. They have remote-controlled cars for some reason, which I've never understood, but we could work those into the video. All right? If the phone rings or a customer has a question, we just play right on through that shit. Well, he doesn't get his video, but he doesn't give up. Late in the 88, Chris and Kurt, they get another drummer, Dave Foster, hard-pounded, hard-living drummer from Aberdeen. Uh, finally, Kurt also comes up with the name Nirvana. Kurt watched a, a late-night TV program on Buddhism. <laughs> he was always sitting up late watching TV, and he watches like an infomercial basically on Buddhism, uh, learns about the concept of nirvana, you know, the concept of spiritual enlightenment, and suddenly considered uh, himself a Buddhist for a little while, uh, long enough for nirvana to get that uh, as a name for the band. Well, the demo he'd made back in January had been mixed and mastered now, passed along to a few people, and one of these people is Jonathan Poneman. Uh, Jonathan is the co-owner of the Seattle indie label you have now heard of called Sub Pop. Uh, you know, just kind of known locally at that time. Poneman had called the band. Conversation Kurt had been waiting for his whole life, man. Poneman wanted to do a Poneman, excuse me, wanted them to do a showcase at a venue called the Vogue, uh, just you know to make sure he wanted to work with them. It's a tiny little venue in Seattle. Uh, he had a monthly showcase there. 
uh, you know, called uh, Showcase Sundays, Sub Pops, Showcase Sundays, $2 cover for three bands, cheap beer specials. Kurt's so excited for the gig with Sub Pop. He goes to Seattle and gets there four hours early for the gig. <laughs> By the time it's uh, their you know, time to play for them, Dave Foster said Kurt was just really uptight, like super anxious. They finally get on stage, and there's again about 20 people, just like Tacoma, right? And this time, though, they're trying to get a fucking record deal. Uh, but, you know, they only got 20 people. They play 14 songs in front of 20 people who mostly uh, leave, actually. There's way less than 20 by the end of the sets. Most of the crowd thought they sucked. Uh, local music photographer was so unimpressed, didn't even shoot any photos of them. Uh, and they drive home sulking about it, you know. And uh, Kurt's, you know, he's promising the band he's going to work harder, write better songs. Uh, but they do feel like it's a total loss. But then a few days later, Sub Pop calls, offers them a record deal. It was for a single with two B-sides and an EP. Right? Sub Pop wanted Love Buzz to be their first song. And uh, Kurt is fucking stoked. Uh, as they prepare to record the album, band though, they hit another drumming snag. Uh, their drummer, Dave Foster, uh, has beat up the mayor's son of a local small town, and he goes to jail for two weeks. Loses his license, has to pay thousands of medical bills, and Kurt, you know, they don't have time to fucking be driving this guy around now and dealing with all this, so they fire him. And the band brings back that Aaron Burkhart from the original lineup, who then almost immediately gets a DUI and loses his license. So they have to get another one, man. Goddamn drummers. It's like, it's like Spinal Tap for these guys. Uh, they get Chad Channing. Chad had been in a band called Tick Tock, or uh, I wanted to add the talk there, Tick Dolly Row. Uh, weirdest names for some of these bands. With Ben Shepard, who would end up being the future bassist for Soundgarden, uh, while working as a cook on Bainbridge Island. How cool is that, man, that all these future rock stars are milling around, taking weird jobs, fucking bouncing from band to band, you know, in this presently unknown Seattle stew of future grunge superstardom. Man, there's members of like, you know, Mudhoney, Soundgarden, Screaming Trees, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, just, just floating around, man, just getting ready to blow up to various degrees. June 11th, 1988, Nirvana heads into the studio, and uh, they record uh, 13 total hours of studio time, and they get four songs, Love Buzz, Spank Through, Big Cheese, and Blandest. In November 1988, Sub Pop releases the Love Buzz single, Big Cheese is the B-side, and they start to get a little bit of play on, like, KCMU, you know, in Seattle, a, a UW indie rock station. Buzz starts to begin to slowly build. Sub Pop ends up wanting to do a full-length album with them, you know, off of the Buzz. But unfortunately, Sub Pop is so broke that they can't pay for the album. So they tell Nirvana, hey, man, we want to do an album with you guys, but you guys are going to have to pay for it, which is usually, that's the exact opposite of how things are supposed to work at a label, right? <laughs> but they're so excited just to have somebody want to do an album that they agree. But that is, that is so ridiculous, you know, that you're just like, like we're going to have you pay for the album, and then we're going to take half of what we make on the album that you paid for because we'll distribute it, kind of. But we're broke, so we probably won't even distribute it. Uh, but anyway, early 1989, Kurt and Tracy start having relationship problems. Uh, he writes a song about it, uh, writes a song as their, as their relationship deteriorates called About a Girl. I'm sure you've heard that. I love the uh, unplugged version of that song. Uh, this song was his first, you know, real love song. It ended up being one of the breakout songs on the Nirvana Unplugged album. Also would show up on Bleach on that first studio album, uh, first full-length studio album. In early 1989, Kurt demands that Sub Pop sign a contract with Nirvana, even though Sub Pop doesn't normally do contracts with bands. Uh, but the band itself demands it, which again is weird. Usually, I mean, it, it's ideal to have a, a, a record done with a label but not be in a contract. Like, that is uh, that is the best-case scenario. Um, but, you know, they want more commitment from Sub Pop, and Sub Pop agrees, and uh, the label's going to pay him 6000 for the first year of the contract, 12000 for the second, 24000 for the third. That was the contract they demanded. Hilarious, you know, considering how much money they would make later and how big they'd blow up. 1989, for most of it, Kurt does not work a regular job and is also not making money with Nirvana. Tracy pays the bills, and Kurt stays at home, writes songs, paints, works on art projects, watches TV. 
Uh, as talented as Kurt was, man, he needed a patron, man. He needed a patron to nurture his talents and give him the time to work on his craft or he never would have made it. No one develops all by themselves. I think that's a good little reminder of that lesson here. And any artist you like, anybody that ever says, like, man, I fucking did it all on my own. No, you didn't. No, you did. Somebody else helped in some way or you would have never made it. Uh, 1989, Nirvana would play over 100 gigs, far more than the total Kurt had played in his entire life before Nirvana. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's now a working musician. Uh, not that the gigs are very good. Uh, their first tour uh, brought them down from Seattle to San Francisco where they were doing shows in front of crowds as small as five people. The band was so broke, oftentimes they would have to eat at a soup kitchen during the day to get a decent meal. Think about how fucking frustrating that would be, how hard it would be not to quit around that time. They were so close to breaking through, but they, they didn't know it. It must have felt so far away most of the time. Uh, June 9th, 1989, Nirvana played Sub Pop's Lame Fest at the Moore Theater in Seattle. They opened for Mud Huddy and Tad. Uh, Bleach wouldn't be available at record shops until June 15th, but fans could buy the album at this show for the first time. It was the first time Kirk gets to watch, uh, gets to watch fans of Nirvana line up to buy a Nirvana album. How fucking cool is that? Awesome moment for him. Uh, late June 89, Nirvana heads out on their first cross-country tour. Heading out for two months together in a van, touring all the way to Boston. Uh, it was Kurt, Chris, Jason Everman, a guy who was a second guitarist they had for a little while, kind of a precursor to Pat Smear. And, uh, and then, you know, they got Chad, the drummer, loaded the band up with their first T-shirts, which I'm not making this up. This isn't one of my things. Uh, the first T-shirt read, Nirvana, fudge-packing, crack-smoking, Satan-worshipping motherfuckers. Fudge-packing, crack-smoking, Satan-worshipping motherfuckers on a T-shirt. How hilarious is that? And I guess they sold enough. <laughs> they sold enough of that shirt to make the uh, you know the tour a tiny bit profitable. I mean, they were still so broke they usually had to choose between food and gas, but they made a tiny bit of money. Oh man, if you if somebody has one of those T-shirts, that has to be worth some serious bank right now. Uh, the band is sleeping on people's floors, or if they do get a hotel bed, they're all snuggled up in it together. So it's still very, very modest kind of you know uh, professional musicianship at this point. 1989, Kurt also begins to see a specialist to figure out why his stomach is always messed up. Goes through a barrage of tests. Uh, Tracy's convinced it's his diet, which I'm kind of convinced of too from everything I've read. Um, the dude's always talking about stomach pain, but he's also uh, joking about never eating salads, never eating vegetables, and he's eating fried and fast foods pretty much only, and he's drinking a shitload of Mountain Dew. That's exactly how you get a fucked up stomach. Fast food and Mountain Dew. If you, if you are having stomach problems, listen, you're like, I don't know why my stomach hurts. And then as you're thinking that, you're eating, you know, your third double-decker Taco Bell taco, and you're pounding a 64-ounce Mountain Dew. That's why. That's exactly why. Uh, Kurt began write, uh, writing songs in 89, like Polly, songs that would end up on Nevermind. Polly, actually, a little trivia there, originally titled Hitchhiker, uh, actually written about a newspaper article Kurt had read about, uh, about the story where a woman was kidnapped, brutally raped, tortured with a blow tor torch, in 1987 by Washington serial rapist Gerald Friend. Ah, what a creepy name for a fucking serial rapist, man. Mr. Friend. Ugh. Uh, near the end of the summer of 1989, uh, band does a two-week tour in the Midwest, and the crowds get a little bigger, up to 200 fans per gig. You know, to their amazement, uh, they'd sell enough T-shirts to actually truly make money. Uh, they actually ended up, uh, got $300 richer by the end of the tour's end. First time they'd ever made, you know, kind of like a... a I guess decent, maybe the word, <laughs> amount of money touring. And again, man, Mr. Friend, how creepy is that? That dude uh, currently serving consecutive 75-year sentences, by the way, at Airway Heights Correctional Facility just outside of Spokane, Washington, by the airport. Uh, October 1989, Nirvana arrives in London to play Europe for the first time. They play all over Europe, from UK to Germany to Italy. Uh, Kurt's stomach ailments continues. Of course they do. He doesn't change his diet at all. He's throwing up bile and blood from time to time. Uh, Nirvana, a little more well-known in Europe. Uh, you know, the Bleach was getting some a little bit better radio play over in Europe, and uh, they sell out some of the smaller venues. 
You know, Bleach actually uh, made it to the top 10 of the UK independent label charts, but they were still barely getting by, still not able to afford hotel rooms most nights, sleeping in the van most nights. By early 1990, Sub Pop wants to do a new album with Nirvana, uh, but Sub Pop is delaying the recording because, you know, surprise, surprise, uh, they're broke. And, uh, you know, so is Nirvana. Kurt applies for a job hosing down kennels for vets to make a little money, and he's not hired. The roller coaster continues, man. Awesome show one night, getting turned down for a job, literally washing dog shit out of kennels the next day. How do you not get hired for that? Uh, Again, I think about that lyric, amazes me the will of instinct. He does not give up. He keeps going. April 1990, Sub Pop gets some cash. Nirvana begins uh, working with record producer Butch Vig in Madison, Wisconsin in April of 1990. Uh, Butch would later work work with a lot of famous grunge bands. He'd formed the 90s uh, band, Garbage. Uh, This recording session was the beginning of the Nevermind album, an album that was originally going to be titled Sheep. Uh, songs like Breed and Lithium were recorded there in, those, in that session. Uh, even though Sub Pop had introduced Nirvana to Butch, Nirvana wants to get away from Sub Pop. And they use a session to create a demo to try to get major label interest. They're tired of working with no budgets, and they want to get some distribution. Also in April of 1990, Kurt had gotten sick of Chad Channing's drumming, and Nirvana was about to get uh, rid of yet another drummer. Also, Kurt breaks up with Tracy, officially the same week he fires Chad May. Kurt had uh, now fallen in love with somebody else, a 20-year-old Olympia musician named Toby Vale. He'd later tell a friend that Toby was the first woman who ever made him so nervous he threw up, like literally threw up. Uh, he wrote about it in aneurysm. Love you so much it makes me sick. Uh, she played drums. She had an, a, a punk rock band of her own. Like a, she had a punk rock record collection. She'd soon form a Bikini Kill, that band. Uh, she was basically like his female counterpart, and he fell, he fell hard for her. Unfortunately, she was not as into him. Uh, July 11th, uh, Nirvana records the single Sliver in the summer. Uh, of 1990, at July 11th, in advance of another UK tour to record it. Uh, they used the drummer from Mudhoney, Dan Peters, man, fifth drummer, just fucking different drummers all the time. But then finally in August 1990, the band, uh, they, they get Dave Grohl. Right, they're on a tour opening for Sonic Youth. Right, They need a drummer again, of course they do. And they get Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl is introduced to Nirvana by Buzz, lead singer of the Melvins. Finally uh, shows up in the Nirvana suck. After one session, Kurt and Chris knew they had found their permanent drummer. Kurt would describe Dave as a fucking animal behind the drums. Uh, Dave began dating Kurt's girlfriend, uh, Bikini Kill, uh, Dave would begin, excuse me, dating Kurt's, Kurt's girlfriend's Bikini Kill bandmate. There we go. That was a lot of words. Kathleen Hanna, the other member of Bikini Kill, besides Toby, uh, a woman who would go, uh, later on to marry Beastie Boy, Adam Horvitz. After one night of partying, Kathleen, uh, spray painted Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit on a bedroom wall. That's the origin of that song title. Uh, she was referring to a deodorant for teenage girls that Toby would use called Teen Spirit. A uh, little joke about how Kurt smelled like Toby because they've been hooking, hooking up, you know. Uh, Nirvana fans, you know, know uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit is the name of that first big single off Nevermind. By the end of 1990, Toby uh, breaks up with Kurt. And he's devastated. He becomes so upset he literally throws up, man. Throws up when he meets her. Throws up when he breaks up. A lot of throwing up with this guy. Uh, still hadn't signed with a major label. He's getting super depressed about his career. And in the uh, four months following the breakup, he writes several of his most memorable songs. Songs about Toby. Songs like Aneurysm, Drain You, Lounge Act, Lithium. Uh, Lithium was actually written before Toby, but he altered some of the lyrics after his breakup with her. He also wrote Smells Like Teen Spirit, of course, you know. That's uh, partly inspired by Toby, as we just found out. So really, we should all thank Toby for breaking his heart and giving us a lot of great songs. But then uh, by November, uh, second week in November 1990, he starts using heroin. This is where it starts. Starts writing about it in his journal. Dude kept a lot of journals, so we're able to find this stuff out about him. Uh, first injected heroin with a friend in Olympia. Loved how the drug made him forget about his breakup, made him forget about his career frustrations, and it made him forget about his stomach pain, at least for a little while. He tells Chris Novoselic about it the next day. Chris tells him, dude, what, do you, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you doing this? Uh, Chris references Andy Wood. Andy Wood was the lead singer of Mother Love Bone, who had recently OD'd and died on heroin at that, that, that March, that previous March. Uh, Mother Love Bone, by the way, like Green River, featured uh, Jeff uh, Ament and Stone Gossard, future founders of Pearl Jam. 
But despite the warning, Kurt keeps doing it. That's generally how it happens with heroin. You generally don't just try it for a few times and be like, no, I'm just going to casually use it. No one fucking casually uses heroin. Uh, Kurt uh, signs with Virgin Publishing that fall, gets his first big advance check. I love this. He gets a check for $3,000, biggest check by far he's ever gotten in his entire life, and he spends a thousand thousand of it immediately at a Toys R Us. How hilarious is that? He gets a Nintendo, uh, a bunch of video cameras, some some BB guns, uh, some Evil Knievel models. He's like a little kid, just been given a shopping spree. He buys fake vomit, a kid's bike, other random shit. Uh, he actually uses the BB gun to shoot out the windows in the Washington State Lotto building across the street right after that. Oh, man. He and the band also signed with Sonic Youth Management around this time, Gold Mountain Management, that fall. And then on November 25th, 1990, huge show for Nirvana. They play the off-ramp in Seattle in front of more music talent scouts than had attended any Northwest concert previously in the history of that scene. A&R reps are there from Columbia, Capitol, Slash, RCA, several other labels. They're filling the audience, and Kurt fucking kills it. Tells a friend later it was the best Nirvana show they'd ever done. They play 12 unreleased songs, opening with aneurysm, first time it was played in public, and then the band ends up signing with Sonic Youth's uh, label, or, or yeah, their music label also. Same management and same, same label. Now they go with DGC, David Geffen Company, a branch of Geffen Records. Uh, Geffen had a strong promotion department, and that was key to breaking the band. Geffen gave them $287,000, which sounds like a lot. Also buys them out of that sub-pop uh, contract for $75,000. Uh, Kurt was ecstatic, but he was also about to get a taste of how the record industry actually works. Right, took until April, first off, to get the deal done. So he has to wait a long time, you know, has to wait almost uh, six months. Uh, for this deal to get done. And then by the time it does get done, uh, after lawyers, managers, taxes, other fees, he's put on a retainer of a thousand bucks a month by his management company. Fuck. After all that, not nearly as sexy as $287,000. And he immediately falls behind on bills despite this big advance. Uh, Kurt's having problems with his stomach still, diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, prescribed Lidox, doesn't seem to help. He gives up on it in a few weeks. By April 1991, uh, the band is beginning to record Nevermind in L.A. at Sound City Studios in Van Nuys. They're back together with Butch Vig uh, most days. They run from 3 p.m. to midnight. All in all, despite Kurt smashing a guitar in frustration during one session, it goes pretty well. Uh, if you've heard this record, it's no surprise. On January 12, 1990, Kurt sees uh, Courtney Love for the first time when Nirvana plays the uh, with the Melvins at Satyricon in Portland. Portland, Oregon, Courtney came with a friend who was dating a member of another band on the bill, the Oily Blood Men. Other uh, names. Uh, Courtney uh, flirted with him, teased him that he looked like the lead singer of Soul Asylum. And then I guess uh, Kurt came over and kind of jokingly wrestled her around. Ended up wrestling to the floor. He likes her, but he's dating Tracy at the time. Uh, excuse me, uh, Toby at the time. And then they, uh, they part ways, but uh, Courtney does not forget about him. And then uh, in late 1990, Courtney's friend Jennifer Finch, who played in the punk band L7, starts dating Dave Grohl. Uh, she's, you know, starts hearing about Kurt a lot. Now Courtney does. Jenna actually had nicknamed Kurt, uh, Pixie Meat because of his small size and his worship of the Pixies. Oh, I love that. Love that about it, man. I love the Pixies too. Frank Black. Hell yes. Uh, Courtney ends up, uh, meeting Dave through Jen. Uh, told Dave she had a crush on Kurt. And then after the breakup with, uh, Toby, uh, when Kurt was single, Court, uh, Courtney sends Kurt a gift. That's, uh, sends him a heart-shaped box. You're probably familiar with that if you're a Nirvana fan. Uh, filled with a tiny porcelain doll, miniature teacup, seashells. She rubbed a perfume on it as well. Kurt was impressed. He loved the doll. He'd been using dolls in his art projects recently. Uh, he would rub off their faces and then patch real human hair on them to make them creepy as shit. Uh, May 1991, Kurt and Courtney meet the second time during an L7 concert at the Palladium in L.A., Los Angeles, California. Kurt was backstage drinking some cough syrup from the bottle. With it. Doesn't have a cold, just, you know, pounded some cough syrup, as people did back then. Courtney showed up, and she had her own cough syrup in her jacket that she brought out, and they compare cough syrups. I'm not fucking making this up. Sounds ridiculous, but I remember that. I remember my friends being in this. I remember a couple friends of mine in Gonzaga. Uh, they would go. They call it roboing. They, 
this is so stupid. Do not do this if you're listening through some kid. This sounds very dangerous to me, but this is what they would do. They would pound bottles of Robitussin and then claim to hallucinate. I never fucking tried it. That sounded like a terrible idea, even as a kid to me. Uh, shotgunning cough syrup. That does not sound fun. But Kurt and Courtney, they were into it. Uh, they meet each other. You know, They wrestle each other to the ground again, this time a little more sexual, I guess, from what witnesses said. Courtney had just finished recording Pretty on the Inside, uh, the initial recordings, an album produced by Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth. Man, that constant Sonic Youth connection, as well as an ever, uh, Melvin's connection. Uh, Nevermind was still in production. Uh, Love had been written off as writing Kurt's coattails, you know, more recently. But actually, you know what? There was a lot of buzz about her career at this time. In the spring of 91, they were on equal footing, you know, as musicians. Nothing, you know, was going going on with one that was, you know, wasn't going on with the other. And uh, despite their little flirtation, nothing's going to go on at this time between them. Love, despite her crush on Kurt, uh, she started dating Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, never mind, it's over budget. Uh, but moving along, ended up costing about 120 grand to record, supposed to be 65000 Uh Geffen's a little worried about the album cover, thinking that the baby penis, you know, if you've seen the album, it's a little baby in the pool underwater, a little wiener sticking out. Geffen thought the, the penis was a little too prominently displayed. You know, they kind of battle over it. Kurt said uh, they could put a sticker over it then, like a warning sticker. Uh, but he wanted the sticker to say, if you're offended by this, you must be a closet pedophile. God, I fucking love his sense of humor. Uh, Kurt is still doing heroin, but he doesn't have the money to do it often. He does have enough money to be a complete weirdo. Uh, gets a little white kitten, names it uh, Quisp, and dyes its hair with Kool-Aid, dyes his own hair with Kool-Aid, and then he uh, apparently lets Quisp have sex with his rabbits too. According to somebody slash neighbor at the time, uh, apparently... <laughs> Watching his uh, cat have sex with a rabbit was one of his favorite things to do. He was a weird dude, and he was a weird, weird dude. I have to say that that probably would be pretty funny to watch, especially when you're high a lot. You know, I imagine he's still stoned a lot of the time, which uh, probably made that pretty funny. Uh, July 15th, 1990, flies to L.A. to work uh, a little bit more on Nevermind, do some promo photos, etc. Uh, but then when he returns home to Seattle two weeks later, his shit's all on the curb. His possessions are out in the curb in boxes. He'd been evicted. His artwork, journals, instruments, etc., sitting out on boxes. His ex-girlfriend, Tracy, had come by to take the animals, you know. Make sure that cat could still fuck the rabbit somewhere else, I guess. <laughs> For the next few nights, he sleeps in his car. How messed up is that, man? He's putting the finishing touches on Nevermind, and he's sleeping in his car. August 17th, 1990, the band films the now-famous Smells Like Teen Spirit music video, video that would play on MTV like no video had played before. If you've seen the Smells Like Teen Spirit video, you know that there's a random janitor in it, and that was a little nod to his former job mopping floors at that uh, Weatherwax High School in Aberdeen. The dropout who mopped floors, right, now is the fucking soon-to-be rock star. Pretty cool. Uh, September 13th, 1991, Friday the 13th, Nevermind is released in Seattle. A little pre-release there. Kurt and the band are doing radio interviews all around Seattle. There's a record party released at Rebar in Seattle. They rage through the night, passed out at a friend's house. The next day, at an in-store record signing, Kurt is blown away, as is Chris and Dave, by how many fans are lined up waiting to see them play at Beehive Records in Seattle. You can find a video of that performance on YouTube, man. Literally the very beginning of true rock and roll fame in the U.S. Can you imagine seeing them in a record shop in 91? They played 45 minutes on that record shop floor. Uh, when the album does come out uh, nationally, it takes two, uh, two weeks to enter the Billboard's Top 200. When it does enter, uh, it's only 144. But by the second week on the charts, it's 109. Third week, 65. Four weeks on November 2nd, it was at number 35, top 40 for the first time. That's huge, man. And it would rise a lot higher, would have written a lot high, uh, higher faster, would have risen a lot higher faster if DGC had printed more records. But they didn't expect it to sell that well. So they only made a little over 46000 initially. And so most places ended up being sold out for weeks. During these first few weeks, Nirvana, uh, Nevermind's barely getting radio play. Uh, they're doing all this growth by word of mouth. Right? But then the requests start pouring in. The research was done by Seattle's KNDD alternative station. Did some research on like how people like the song, and it received the highest positive response in the station's polling history. People fucking loved it. People loved it who only heard a 15-second clip 
played over the phone. Ah, amazing. MTV uh, starts playing Smells Like Teen Spirit now. Becomes one of the channel's first big uh, buzz bin videos in early November. I totally remember watching that. Uh, by October, all of Nirvana's shows are selling out. Man, that Halloween, Nirvana sells out the Paramount in Seattle. Really famous theater. Uh, they were supposed to play the Moore, another famous one, but uh, they had to be moved at the last minute to a larger ven- venue to accommodate ticket sales. They had officially blown the fuck up. Also in October, uh, Orny, uh, Kurt would fall in love with, uh, with Courtney. Uh, Courtney Love. Nirvana was playing in Chicago. Uh, to play, they were in Chicago to play the Cabaret Metro. Billy Corgan lived there, you know, in the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, Courtney's boyfriend, Courtney, flown out to go see him the same weekend that, uh, you know, uh, that the fucking Nirvana was doing shows. And then she walked in on uh, Corgan with another girl, and they were done. And then that night, uh, she goes to see Nirvana play. Uh, Kurt smashes his drum kit, close out the set, or I guess Dave's <laughs> drum set. After the show, uh, Courtney sneaks into a backstage party, sees Kurt, runs over and sits on his lap. Kurt's happy to see her, and then they head back to his hotel that night. And Kurt and, uh, Kurt and Courtney uh, bond immediately. Uh, she had her own fucked up childhood to match his, made him feel, you know, uh, less misunderstood, more than his previous girlfriends. You know, Courtney knew what government cheese tasted like. She knew what it was like to tour in a van and struggle for gas money. She got it. Also, like Kurt, Courtney wasn't a stranger to heroin. And the two first did it together in L.A. on October 25th. Courtney uh, apparently hadn't done it very often. Uh, Kurt at this point was escalating to daily use. He was rationalizing it as controlling his stomach pain. I think this is important to mention uh, that Courtney did not, uh, popular to rumors on the Internet, turn Kurt onto heroin. And that was all Kurt. By Halloween, Nevermind had sold 500,000 copies. It's gone gold. By November 28th, it hits a million sales in the U.S. alone while the band's on tour in the U.K. They're the biggest thing in music months after being basically broken homeless. Courtney is being accused of uh, hooking up with a rising star at uh, this time, even though really reviews of her first album were as good as his. Her second album, uh, Live Through This, would receive four and a half out of five stars in Rolling Stone. You go Platinum 94, right? Pretty on the inside, also, you know, received really well, really good reviews. Nevermind actually initially got uh, four out of five, uh, got nine out of 10 by Spin, five out of five by Blender, you know, but they both did really well. Like they were both basically getting the same really good reviews. And I just want to point this out that, uh, you know, she wasn't just a hanger-on. She was a popular and critically acclaimed musician outside of Nirvana. Cause I just I just hear that constantly going into this into this research about how Courtney Love killed him. Courtney Love wrote his coattails. You know, I'm not saying she wasn't a gold digger. Maybe she was, but she was also successful. And it's not like people were you know buying Courtney Love records because she was dating Kurt. That's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> no one no one's gonna buy it just to hear. I mean, he wasn't on it. Uh, January 1992, Nevermind hits number one on the Billboard chart, bumping off Michael Jackson's Dangerous. Nirvana plays two songs on Saturday Night Live, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Territorial Pissings. Nevermind has now sold over 30 million albums worldwide. Also, even though they were were both doing heroin, uh, they didn't know it, Courtney was now pregnant with his daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, who would be born in August. Life is moving fast for Kurt, man. He and Courtney ran a place in L.A. that spring, first time Kurt had lived outside of Washington. In Hawaii, on February 24th that year, Kurt and Courtney get married while on tour. Kurt does not invite his family to the wedding. Neither does Courtney. Says a lot about their relationships with their families. Also, Kurt does not invite uh, Chris Novoselic's wife, Shelly. Uninvites her. Thinks she's being mean to Courtney. So Chris doesn't come either, and this begins to cause a rift in their relationship. Actually, Chris would leave Hawaii thinking that his time in Nirvana was over. Frances Bean Cobain is born on August 18th, 1992. The day after she's born, uh, Kurt scores heroin uh, in the hospital and actually fucking ODs in the hospital. How crazy is that? Uh, He got a gun also, brings it to the hospital. He and Courtney made a double suicide pact. He was going to kill himself and kill Courtney. I guess not in that order. That would be hard to do. Uh, if someone tried to take their baby, and they were worried about someone trying to take their baby because of a Vanity Fair interview where Courtney admitted to doing heroin while pregnant. Well, two days after Francis's birth, a social worker shows up at the hospital with that Vanity Fair article in tow. 
right? The county petitions to have Kurt and Courtney declared unfit parents and have the child taken from her. The court refuses uh, to, to release the baby home with them. Uh, nanny ends up having to take the baby out of the hospital. August 24th, 1992, the first court hearing is held regarding Francis Bean's custody. Uh, Kurt was ordered to undergo 30 days of drug treatment. Both parents would be drug tested randomly after that, and visits with Francis would be supervised for a little while. Francis would, for the time, have to live with Courtney's half-sister. And then days later, he's heading to Europe to headline the Reading Festival on August, right? August 30th. What a strange life he's leading. Fit to headline Europe's biggest rock festival, not fit to be a dad. Uh, September 11th, 1992, Nirvana performs at a sold-out uh, show uh, at the Seattle Col- Center Seattle Center Coliseum, right? 16,000 rabid fans. This is the venue he'd watched Sammy Hagar at as a kid, right? His first taste of live music there, and now he's selling it out himself. That's some rock star shit. Hundreds of kids are crowd surfing. Uh, Chris Novoselic actually tells the crowd that night about how he'd gotten drunk at a Neil Young concert at the Coliseum years ago and then been banned for life. And that backstage before the show, he found a picture of himself in a room uh, <laughs> for, you know, like postings of people who are not supposed to be allowed into the Coliseum. How fucking great is that? And now he's rocking it out, sold out on stage. These guys are golden gods at this point. But things are not going well uh, uh, back, you know, kind of behind the scenes in the band. Uh, Kurt and Chris' relationship, again, had been kind of strained since that Hawaii wedding. And then uh, whenever Kurt and uh, Dave Grohl would fight, Kurt would threaten to throw him out of the band like he had previous drummers. Right? They did have a history of getting rid of drummers, and Dave actually almost quit over criticism from Kurt in 1993. Uh, Kurt's behavior is getting more and more erratic, more negative with his combination of success and heroin abuse. The band records their third and final studio album in February of 1993 in utero, uh, not counting Incesticide, you know, uh, since that was a collection of B-sides and rarities, not counting Nirvana Unplugged. So that was just one one take recording of a live show. So this was their their third and final studio album. Uh, Initially, Kurt wanted the album to be titled, as I said before, I Hate Myself and Want to Die. Holy shit, man. Uh, Chris talked him out of that, apparently, saying it could encourage kids to kill themselves and then they could get sued by those kids' families. Well, a lot of the In Utero songs came out of his marriage with Courtney. The name In Utero actually came from a, a poem of Courtney Loves. Uh, Kurt's drug use is continuing. He nearly overdoses on heroin on May 2nd, 1993. He's taken to King County Hospital, barely makes it, barely lives. Turned blue, was uh, dead for a little bit. August 1993, Kurt is clearly troubled. Uh, he's, he's doing numerous interviews in 1993, and he's referencing suicide in almost every one. His stomach problems continue. Uh, the, moment, the, the morning he tapes at the MTV Unplugged special, I guess he spent an hour filling a dietitian's questionnaire. And then uh, Kurt, Courtney and Kurt uh, moved into a house in Seattle, uh, now infamous house, in uh, January of 94, 171 Lake Washington Boulevard East. Uh, it's a house in one of Seattle's most, uh, most upscale neighborhoods. Uh, Denny Blaine is the name of the neighborhood. Uh, their next-door neighbor was Howard Schultz, founder of Starbucks. There's a large lot, three-quarters of an acre, lushly landscaped, a block or so away from Lake Washington. About 7,000 square foot of house. Square feet, man. 7,000. Had five uh, bedrooms, five fireplaces. Looked like a president could take a retreat in it. Kurt and Courtney lived there with Francis's nanny, and they paid $1.1 million for it. I looked up what it's worth now because that actually seemed really cheap to me. And just over 20 years later, it's worth $7 million. What the fuck? And not because Cobain lived there. That's just what houses go for around there now. God, man, just, you know, the cost of higher education, the cost of real estate's gotten so out of fucking control the last four years. Definitely going to time suck that bullshit eventually. The American dream is getting way too expensive. February, uh, Nirvana flies to Europe for some shows. The band, uh, you know, thought he was a mess this time. Courtney doesn't accompany him. She's finishing post-production on her new album. Kurt is uh, worried about bringing his new family. He's worried about them falling apart, tries to cancel the tour, but he's told he'll be liable for damages if he does so. They play uh, throughout Europe all through February, uh, making their way to Germany in early March, accompanying Nirvana on this tour is the Melvins. Man, how cool is that? Only 11 years earlier, Kurt had been hanging around the Melvins in their practice you know, spot. 
back in Montesano. Man, that little town near Aberdeen. And now the Melvins are opening up for him in fucking arenas in Europe. Uh, Nirvana would play their very last show, actually, with the Melvins. Kind of poetic, really. In Munich on March 1st. Before going on stage for that Munich show, after the Melvins set, before Nirvana set, Kurt spoke with Buzz Osborne. You know, the Melvins lead singer, kind of his mentor early on. And I guess he unleashed a long list of problems. Buzz said it was the most distraught Kurt had ever looked. Kurt told Buzz he was going to break up Nirvana, fire his management, and divorce Courtney. He told Buzz that I should be doing this solo. Kurt uh, cuts the show uh, short, you know, finds his agents, tells him that's it, cancel the next gig. Kurt also finds a, a doctor who would write him a note saying he was too sick to perform so he wouldn't be held liable for future gigs. Then he heads to Rome where he's supposed to meet up with Courtney and Francis, you know, and then he checks into a hotel uh, with them on March 3rd. Yeah, actually, Pat Smear came down with them, and, you know, by all accounts, uh, everybody was getting along really well. So, see, he was doing this thing at this time where it's like, you know, one second he's like, man, I'm going to get a divorce. I'm going to fire these guys. And the next second, you know, everything's great. He's just, he's a very, he's all, he's a fucking junkie at this point. He's all over the place. Uh, so, yeah, so they have a, have a good night uh, that night, apparently. But then uh, the next morning when Courtney wakes up, uh, Kurt is passed out on the floor. Uh, I say passed out. He's overdosed on the floor uh, with blood coming out of his mouth. Uh, she'd seen him overdose apparently dozens of times by now, but this time I guess it was different. This time it was not accidental, right? This time he had a suicide note clutching his hand. He wrote about being sick of uh, touring. He wrote about how Courtney didn't love him anymore. He accused Courtney of wanting to cheat on him with her ex, Billy Corgan, said he'd rather die than go through divorce. So he, all this crazy shit, man. He's just telling Buzz the day before, like, man, I want to get rid of these people. And next he's like, I'll kill myself if they leave me. Uh, Kurt had taken 60 uh, rohypnol pills, also known as uh, flonitrazepam. Flonitrazepam. It's a powerful sleeping pill. Each pill, uh, I guess, is about 10 times as powerful as a similar-sized pill of Valium. Uh, 60 pills, easy enough to kill somebody. An ambulance takes him to the hospital, uh, You know, pumps his stomach. He comes out of a, a coma that he'd fallen into about 20 hours later. Uh, the event uh, became highly publicized in the U.S., appearing on CNN, other news outlets. Uh, there was definitely some initial false reports floating around that he died. March 8th, 1994, Kurt leaves the hospital. March 12th, he flies back to Seattle. His management team's working on damage control now. They're trying to sell a story to the press that it was not an, you know, a suicide attempt. It was an accidental overdose. And I guess most people buy it. Uh, despite the Rome scare, he goes right back to heroin abuse. He's full-on fucking junkie right now. Uh, Courtney bans drugs from the house. Uh, she'd say later Kurt's response was to go do heroin in CD motels on Aurora Avenue. Nova Selleck starts to wonder uh, if the coma uh, he was in, in uh, after the Rome overdose actually put his uh, like brain damaged him somehow, like if he had some kind of brain damage from that. Said he was so fucked up, he just wouldn't listen to anybody. So is it, this isn't just, you know, again, with the conspiracy stuff, this isn't just, you know, like Courtney kind of writing this narrative. The other people around him from this time also would say later that he was just out of control. March 18th, Kurt uh, threatened suicide, locks himself in the bedroom back in Seattle. Courtney sees uh, several guns on the floor. Uh, when, when he opens the door, she calls the police. Please come to the house. Second time in six days, they've come over for some kind of domestic dispute. The police seized three pistols and a rifle that day. They also took 25 pounds of ammunition. The officers also took Kurt downtown for questioning. They're worried about him. Then they release him. By late March, his normal uh, heroin dealers stopped selling to him. That's when you're fucked up, man. When, you're, when your heroin dealers are like, no, man, you don't need any more. I guess they were afraid that if he you know, OD'd you know, in connection with them, they could get in a lot of trouble just because of his notoriety. Right? They didn't want to be blamed for Kurt's death. They didn't want the heat that, that would come with that. Uh, I guess he tells uh, one of the dealers, like, you know, don't even worry about it, man. Heroin is not going to kill me. He said he was going to shoot himself in the head. <laughs> I mean, he's saying this stuff to people, people who talk about this later. Uh, Kurt's behavior is getting more and more and more erratic. Uh, Chris, you know, thinks that he's totally determined to kill himself at this point. Courtney uh, flies down to L.A. on March 25th to go over final details in connection with the release of uh, Hole's new album. She urges Cobain to come with her, check into a recovery program. Finally, he does. He comes down the 28th, three days later. He goes to Marina Del Rey and checks into Exodus. He'd been uh, in this recovery program before. It's kind of a re recovery program that took a lot of like uh, musicians. 
And it was the first sign of hope he'd given anybody in weeks, if not months, if not years. Uh, the optimism, short-lived, three days later, uh, he suddenly leaves the facility without warning. In a panic, Love hires a private, uh, private investigator to find him. The trail stretches to Seattle, but the investor apparently can't find him. Kurt makes it to Seattle on April 2nd. Over the next few days, there's random sightings of Kurt around Seattle. And I guess the, uh, the private investigator never went to Kurt's house to go look for him or really pursue that because uh, the nanny is there, a man named Callie. Uh, who, who was living there, and you know, Courtney thought that Callie would tell her if Kurt showed up, but I guess Callie didn't want to get in the middle of it. And again, conspiracy theorists think that Callie may have killed him. I think, man, he was probably just a dude just caught in the middle of this, these messy fucking junkies, and Callie's doing drugs himself at this time, and he just doesn't want to deal with it. He doesn't want to be the one who rats Kurt's out and maybe loses his you know, sweet fucking gig hanging out being the nanny sometimes and doing drugs around there. Uh, doesn't want to get caught up. So sometime on or before the afternoon of April 5th, they wouldn't find his body uh, for several days, Kurt Cobain barricaded himself in the greenhouse above his garage by propping a stool against his French doors. He penned a one-page note, suicide note in red ink. He drew a chair up to the window, overlooking the Puget Sound, sat down, pressed the barrel of the 20-gauge shotgun to his head, and evidently using his thumb, pulled the trigger and blew his brains out. The man who had been talking about suicide on a regular basis for his entire adult life in teenage years, finally did it. At 27 years old, the wild, talented light that had been Kurt Cobain was snuffed out forever. And that feels like a definite end to this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. The autopsy also found sleeping pills and an amount of heroin in Kurt's system, uh, believed to be lethal after this. Uh, the shotgun blast to the face wouldn't have killed him. Apparently the drugs would have. Despite all this, man, rumors of the murder persist. Uh, for this episode, I leaned heavily for my research on the book Heavier Than Heaven by Charles Cross. I highly recommend it. It's a big one. But if you're really interested, you know, in Kurt's life, uh, that's where I got a lot of my info from. Uh, there is other books out there like Love and Death, The Murder of Kurt Cobain by Ian Halperin and Max Wallace. But these guys look like fucking wackadoodles to me. Like straight up. Like if, like if you had an appointment with a surgeon and you walked into the room and saw one of these clowns uh, as your doctor, you, you would walk back out if you had any respect for yourself and wanted to live. I, I looked into the murder conspiracies, most of which are perpetuated by the uh, Tom Grant, the private investigator Courtney hired, and he seems like a fucking nut. Seems like an opportunist trying to cash in on being the PI hired to find Kurt. Uh, he asserts stuff like the suicide note wasn't written by Kurt. Says the uh, handwriting analysis shows it was probably written by Courtney, but he won't, but he won't name the, the experts that supposedly verify this. Uh, he talks about the shotgun not being dusted for prints, uh, questions fingerprints miss, uh, missing for the on the suicide pen, on and on. A lot of these theories are kind of covered in the docudrama Soaked in Bleach. Uh, but on, on June 27th, uh, 2016, Vernon uh, Jabareth, former hom homicide detective of the New York City Police Department, who was among the experts interviewed in the docudrama, posted an article on his practical homicide investigation website and Facebook page stating that he was not happy that the producers of Soaked and Bleach made it appear that he agreed with his theory. He stated further that, you know, he made it quite clear that he believed Kurt Cobain had taken his own life, and he backed up his opinion with the fact that he obtained from the Seattle Police Department's homicide division, coupled with his experience with suicide cases. I think uh, with that docudrama, the filmmaker did what filmmakers often do in those docudrama-ish productions they go in with a predetermined premise of what they think happened you know what they what they want to have happened and they twist and distort facts to to make that case you know kurt being murdered frankly is just a sexier angle to talk about uh you know than a sad troubled junkie just finally killing himself and it made his fans feel better you know appeals to them a little better too but i just i don't buy it after everything i read i do not buy it but you you know who uh does think he killed himself uh dave grohl kurt no uh, chris novoselic and that means something to me the people he was around the most you know, the, his family thinks he killed himself. The police think he killed himself. 
But you know who definitely thinks he was murdered? Uh, a lot of idiots of the internet. Under a YouTube video uh, called the Kurt Cobain Conspiracy, user Scott6794 says, Courtney's lawyer found pieces of notebook paper in Courtney's possession on which she was practicing Kurt's handwriting. This single fact, coupled with her own father publicly calling her an accessory to the murder, should be enough for people to get the picture. Courtney even wrote poems about one day marrying a rich rock star and murdering anybody who got in her way. Her album, Live Through This, came out right after he died. She's a scary and psychotic woman who had him killed for financial reasons. So obvious. So obvious, you guys. So obvious. Listen, Scott the Twat, her album did come out right after he died. After months of fucking planning while he was alive. It was already on the release docket long before he died. Right? How's that going to help sales, by the way? <laughs> it's not. She didn't have him killed and then quickly tossed out an album to capitalize on his death, right? And her lawyer never found any such thing. You just pulled that from a dailymail.co.uk article. I found the same article. That fucking website, after doing research on so many of these uh, episodes now, is about as reputable as Star Magazine. I come across it all the time, and it is consistently horseshit. It's a fucking tabloid where they just make up nonsense. Uh, there's a reason that particular story doesn't show up in a single legitimate source. It's horseshit. Uh, but user Mr. Suns 10 says... Sadly, people think conspiracies are for nut jobs when most of the time the conspiracies are true. Really? Most of the time, Mr. Sons? Most of the time. Conspiracies are true. No, that is obviously nonsense. Most conspiracies are fucking crazy talk, which is why they have a bad name. Right? And this is from coming from somebody who loves a good conspiracy theory when it has some legitimacy. But you know what? Usually things actually are what they seem, which is why you don't often hear detectives say stuff like, well, uh, I think we can uh, clearly see that the lizards did this. Or uh, probably the work of the Illuminati. Or maybe uh, guessing this has something to do with Hitler still living in South America, right, guys? Yeah, you're fucking dumber than Scott the Twat there, Mr. Sons. Then user Wizard writes, I agree fully. I've even read that Courtney was great friends with the medical examiner who signed Kurt's death certificate as a suicide. Where did you read that? In a pamphlet that you wrote in your butt? All right, Courtney did not, she did not know the examiner, examiner. Courtney did not, Kurt had a loose association with the examiner. If you fucking researched it all, you halfwit. In the 80s, Dr. Nicholas Hartshorn was barely, barely a punk rock promoter, as were so many people in Seattle around that time. He was responsible for booking Nirvana at like one shitty gig very early on at the Central Tavern in Seattle in 88. Six years later, right, he served as the medical examiner for Kurt Cobain following his death. And who cares? That, that doesn't mean they knew each other. That's beyond a stretch. Right? And Chris usually dealt with uh, uh, the promoters anyway. So he, more, more likely that Chris Novoselic knew this guy and definitely very unlikely that Courtney knew this guy. But twat this, uh, Twatty Scotty, he jumps back in saying, Wizard, I would bet money that she was close with that examiner. She's actually very intelligent and from what her father says, quote, is a complete psychopath with violent tendencies. Of course her dad said that. She had been estranged from her dad for many, 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 many years. All right, and, then, and now this dad is writing a book about it all, about you know everything he knew about Kurt and Gordon. He didn't fucking know anything because he wasn't involved in the family. He was never around. He wasn't in their lives, right? He wasn't invited. He wasn't even at the wedding. Clearly, you know, they were not close. They've been estranged for many years. This, is, this dude doesn't know shit about shit. He's just a loser trying to make an exploitation buck off his estranged daughter. Scott also adds, though, David Geffen strikes me as a very cold and calculating guy as well. Something tells me he had something to do with it. Okay, all right. Uh, let me get this straight. Scott, David Geffen is going to have the most profitable act on one of his labels murdered. That makes sense. Uh, that makes total sense, right? That makes total sense to have a tremendously financially profitable person killed, you know, instead of just letting him, you know, make this guy make many more millions cranking out new records. That's like having, that's like Phil Jackson. 
having Michael Jordan killed in 1992. You fucking idiot. Uh, and so many others talk about how Courtney would have, you know, been nothing if Kurt would have just lived and he, he was going to cut her out of his will. Well, you know what? Her band Hole has sold over 5 million albums. I'm not saying I'm the biggest. I'm not like her biggest fan. But I'm just saying she's not some bum who hasn't done anything. She's just not. No matter what you think of her, that's just not true. Right? Uh, you know, I, I'm just saying that she, she did not sneak. Here's the fact. She did not sneak Kurt Cobain out of that rehab facility. He did. She didn't make him buy guns the last few years of his, li- few years of his life. He did. She didn't turn him into a heroin junkie. He did. All right? She didn't make him tell people he was going to kill himself his whole fucking life. He did that as well. And she wasn't in Washington when he died. Sometimes, again, things are what they seem. And all the time, there are so many idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. 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 All right, look. Well, if you've learned anything from the suck, uh, it's that this dude was very troubled, man. He was trying to kill himself long before that shotgun blast. The man was so talented, but also kind of a selfish asshole, man. He had a baby at home. He had adoring fans all around the world who really loved him, like really loved him. He could have given the world so much more, so much more amazing music. Could have used his rock star money for good. Maybe start some charity, start some funds, trust funds. I don't know, something. But he shot himself instead. Did he do it because his stomach hurt all the time? Maybe, I guess. Maybe maybe he was sick of the chronic pain, but he also didn't do much to fix it. You know, he's, yeah, he saw doctors. Yes, he saw specialists. Yes, he had tests. But did he follow their advice? I highly doubt it because he was smoking, doing heroin, eating a ton of fast food all the time. I'm sure none of them were like, hey, man, just keep doing what you're doing. You keep doing heroin, uh, smoke a lot, and eat a lot of fucking Taco Bell, and you're going to be fine. Drink more Mountain Dew, if anything. That's exactly how you fuck your stomach up. My stomach hurts so bad every time I occasionally have Taco Bell, which is not often because it kills me. You know, this is not some silly joke. But seriously, like violent, painful stuff happens to me in the bathroom within 30 minutes. It's terrible. Because it's terrible food. It's not good for you. Uh, you know, he, 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 Kurt refused to accept the reality of his newly divorced family and adapt a, as a kid. You know, Kurt didn't seem willing to adapt as an adult. You know, he seemed very unrealistic about life in a lot of ways. He wanted to be healthy, but he wanted to do a lot of drugs. He wanted to have a family, but he wanted to shoot up heroin. He wanted to be a rich rock star, but never tour. He loved his fans. He hated his fans. The guy needed a therapist, honestly. He needed to work on getting his shit together, take responsibility for his life, but he didn't, you know, and now he's dead. And others died because of him. After returning home from uh, Cobain's suicide vigil, Daniel Kaspar, 28, ended his life with a single bullet. In southern Turkey, a 16-year-old girl, some fan of Kurt Cobain's, locked herself in a, in a room, cranked Nirvana music up, shot herself in the head. Friends said she had been depressed ever since hearing about Cobain's death recently. Now, Kurt did not kill those people, all right? I'm not saying that, but he did take away one of the reasons to live. I get being in a dark place. I really do. Man, I hated growing up in a divorced household. I really did. Hated it. You know, when my wife left me, I hated that I was continuing the cycle of divorce. Thought about killing myself. I remember driving down a windy highway, you know, after taking a couple of Vicodin that I didn't need to be taking, thinking it would just be easy to drive right off the road. I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. I could just ramp the car up to about 120, plant it right into a tree, be done with it. Had a life insurance policy that would give my kids some money. I thought maybe that'd be best. Thought they'd hurt for a while, but move on. But then I thought about how selfish that would really be, how much it would hurt him, you know, how, how the scar would never heal from that, you know? And it would mean I didn't get to see what else, uh, you know, life might hold for me. I didn't watch him grow up and all that shit. And I'm glad I didn't. So glad. Life's gotten a lot better in those dark days. You know, love being a part of my kids' lives. Love where my life is now. Love doing this. Love watching him grow up. Love my amazing wife. Love fucking Penny. Little Penny Pooperton, my pup. A lot of fun stuff. I wanted to do this episode uh, after thinking about the recent suicides of Chester Bennington, you know, from Lincoln Park, Chris Cornell, Soundgarden, Audio Slave. Those guys both left families behind. But even if they didn't, man, it's important to remember you're never alone. Right? You're never just going to check out and not bother anyone. There's always someone who cares about you. And if you're sure there's not, then stay alive, stay alive long enough to find one. Give that to yourself. Don't let those fucking dickheads who you don't think value you, don't let them win. Stay alive to piss people off who don't like you, if nothing else. Now, I want to take a second to give the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 1-800-273-8255, and it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
No shame in calling that number. It'll be in the episode description on the website. 1-800-273-8255. It's a suicide prevention lifeline. Time sucker and fellow comic and podcaster, uh, Christopher James out of Salt Lake City. He knew I was doing this topic and he hit me up. Said he wanted to you know, share his story. Said he'd planned his own suicide a few years ago. I was really shocked, man, because he's a super friendly, super upbeat, happy guy. I would even use jovial to describe him. Very friendly and upbeat, oozing positivity. And it sounds like for most of his life, you know, he'd been that way. But a couple years ago, he got caught up in a bad relationship with somebody who was super cool at first, just like a friendship. You know, some dude, and it was uh, slowly and surely became verbally abusive and demoralizing someone who just eroded his confidence little by little. Somebody poisonous. I've met people like this. You know, when I was a kid, I had a few friends briefly like this. Now I spot him immediately. You know, that kind of person who uh, likes to slip in extremely hurtful comments under the guise of just joking. You know, what are you doing this weekend, man? It's not like you're going to be going on a date. I mean, look at you. I mean, I mean, no offense. But you're not exactly a lady, lady magnet. You know what I mean? I mean, dude, come on. I'm not being mean. I'm just joking. I'm just joking, dude. What, what, hey, remember, why did you say that earlier, man? That was so, that was so stupid. God, you're fucking an idiot sometimes, dude. Why are you, why are you, dude, what? Come on, I'm joking. I'm joking. Dude, everybody, look how skinny this fucking idiot is. Oh my God, man. Eat already. You look gross. Dude, wind could blow you over. Man, oh, come on. Why are you butthurt? I'm just joking, dude. What's up, tons of fun? What's up, chubby checkers? What's up? What's up, fucking double wide? Oh, dude, calm down, man. I'm not picking on you. Oh, come on, man. You know you're fat. Come on. I'm just, no, I'm joking. Dude, I'm, no, you're not. You're a fucking dick. You're a sad, poisonous, hateful little dick who probably has a little dick, and I'm not just joking. Uh, well, this person, this, this dick, eroded Christopher's confidence until he felt like such a piece of shit, he thought it would be best just to check out, especially when some bad legal stuff came out about this guy, and then Christopher got a bunch of flack online by kind of guilty of association. Now, basically, uh, you know, this friend's his only, uh, this dude's his only friend, and he said uh, he was planning, like literally planning his own death, and then it was like, all of a sudden, it's like he woke up out of a bad dream, realized he had so much to live for, so much life ahead of him, and now he's great again, man. And you can be great again if you're in a dark place. Don't let anybody talk you out of living your life, man. Don't let anybody talk you out of, you know, uh, you know, having having a great life. You fucking beautiful slash handsome slash super talented bastard. The world needs you. I mean, you're a time sucker for fuck's sake. So you know that you're the cream of the goddamn crop. You know, you're curious and magnificent living testament to greatness. So, you know, and if you give up, uh, you know, the great Nimrod is not going to let you back into his heavenly ball sack. How about that? He's going to stick you in his butthole. That's what happens. If you're feeling low and you're thinking bad thoughts, just ask yourself, is this going to be worth an eternity in Nimrod's butthole? No? Then calm down, Kimosabi. And don't do heroin, ever. It's legendarily addictive. It's mind-altering. Become a heroin junkie uh, like Kurt was, and you're not going to ever think straight again. Guaranteed. That's exactly how you end up killing yourself, by the way, too. Twisted thoughts. You start wrapping around your head that really aren't your own. They're, they're some mental illness, some, some drug abuse thoughts. Don't ever try it. If you get hooked on it, get help now. There's no good stories about long-term heroin use. My stepbrother did heroin. Uh, stepbrother growing up, and he ended up uh, going out exactly like Kurt did. He blew his brains out. No joke. Uh, heroin never improves anyone's life, man. No one ever shows up in an award show saying, you know what? I owe this all to heroin. Before shooting up, I didn't even know how to play guitar. But once I started riding the devil's fucking horse, it all just kind of came to me. Everything fell in place. Women, money, fame, talent. Thanks, heroin. All right. I've, I've given my soapbox speech. Now, time for one last look, look at Kurt with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, during the production of Nevermind, after the indie success of Bleach, Kurt still got evicted out of a shitty apartment for not paying rent and slept in his car. And that frustration and angst you hear on those first two records, oh, that's real. That's very real. Number two, despite rantings on the web, Courtney Love did not introduce Kurt Cobain to heroin. Was she an enabler? Yes. But no more than Kurt enabled her. They were both junkies. He just happened to be the one, more famous one and happened to be the one that died. Number three, Kurt had been thinking about suicide and threatening to kill himself on and off again since he was in high school, if not earlier. He was a very sensitive dude who clearly never recovered emotionally from his parents' divorce and the fallout it created. Number four, 
The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Don't be all, you know, pusillanimous and not call it. Number five, new info. Back in 2014, the 20th anniversary of Kurt's death, police did review his case again. Detective Mike Sosensky, a veteran with 20 years working homicide, 10 years specializing in cold case investigations, explains in a report that he learned of a new clue about the shotgun shell that killed Cobain. As part of his review of the evidence inside the bag of shotgun shells, uh, Seattle Police Department found uh, at Cobain's side 20 years ago, Detective Sosinski writes, I recovered a sales receipt for $6.95, which was dated 4 On the box of 20-gauge ammunition is a price sticker for $6.95 from Seattle Guns. This sales receipt had not been previously disclosed by the SPD. For the first time, Detective Sosinski claims to have connected this date of April 2nd on the receipt, first to the store, Seattle Guns, and then to what he identifies as another significant piece of information from the original detective's follow-up report. In that report, it was noted that a gray-top taxi picked up a mail from the Cobain residence on the morning of 4294. The mail advised the cab driver that he wanted to find a place to buy some bullets since he had recently been burglarized. The cab driver dropped this person off in the area of 145th and Aurora. Szczynski's new report explains that Seattle Guns was located just south of 145th and Aurora. Conspiracy theorists like Grant insist that a conspirator fired the weapon that killed Cobain, questioning his inability to do so after taking a large dose of heroin and questioning Cobain's will to commit suicide. Detective Szczynski his determination uh, was that Kurt Cobain purchased the shotgun shells within one or two days of his death appears to suggest a person planning a suicide more than it might the coincidence of Cobain buying the shells that a conspirator ultimately used to kill him in a planned stage suicide. So there you go. Don't kid yourself. Kurt Cobain killed Kurt Cobain. Time suck. Top five takeaways. So that was this week's suck, you guys. I hope you loved it. This Friday, it's bonus episode MK Ultra. Been reading fascinating shit about the CIA's project to master mind control. A lot of LSD use. Uh, makes sense, actually, that they tried this. The CIA's main job is extracting covert information from targets. How better to get that information than to figure out how to control the subject's mind? Rendered them unable to resist spilling their darkest secrets. Turn them into a human robot. Shit is going to get crazy. It's going to get weird on Friday. This is a conspiracy that appears to be all too real. What unethical experiments did our own government engage in? How did they justify them? How strong was the LSD? Find out in a cover-up suck this Friday. And then next Monday, a week from now, KKK. KKK getting sucked. After, after recent shenanigans and the tragedy in Charlottesville, I want to learn more about these sons of bitches, about these hate mongers. Find out how fucking dumb their agenda actually is. Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. Okay, first update, another tragic mispronunciation. The Slender Man stabbing took place in Waukesha, not Waukesha. It's Waukesha. Austin Stork, Bryce Rich, David Smith, Nicole uh, Alley, and other time suckers wrote in to let me know about that. Uh, lesson here, I have to stop using pronunciation videos for the names of cities. I always fuck up the actual word pronunciation. I mispronounce pronunciation when I start to say it. Oh, my God. Uh, seriously, though, those videos are wrong so much of the time. I think I know. I, I need to know where, uh, or I know where to go now. Uh, local news videos. Find a local news story about the town, you know, where they say the town's name, you know, like where some local is saying the town's name. And, and, I, and I know that many of you don't even care that I fuck these names up from time to time, but I am really glad I get these corrections because for me, part of what Time Suck is about, you know, is trying to be my best, trying to put forth the best possible suck each week. And uh, up in my pronunciation game, it, you know, it's part of that. I know the research is more important, but, you know, it's still important. The pronunciation is also important. Uh, Nicole also let me know that uh, jury members for the Slenderman stabbing trial are being picked from Waukesha County, and they will be sequestered during the whole process, and that the judge issued arrest warrants for potential jury members that haven't responded to their questionnaires yet. Over 100 residents of the county were sent the questionnaires, and 12 didn't respond, resulting in a court summons to explain themselves. 
Only two of those people showed up. So arrest warrants sent out for the other 10. So another odd twist in this uh, case. Uh, what's going on with these jurors? I don't know, man. Maybe Slenderman got to him. How fucking weird would that be? How messed up would that be if that son of a bitch is somehow real? I know he's not, but he does creep me out. Okay, another update from young time sucker Madison Herbst, recent high school grad, an outstanding human being. She sent in another Slenderman update, and I, I love this. She says, Master Sucker, after listening to the Slenderman episode of Time Suck, I recalled one of my most embarrassing middle school memories. Don't worry. It's not as bad as the creepypasta kits. I started middle, middle school in 2011, just around the time the Slenderman meme began to get super popular. I also had just discovered the internet. Being one of those girls that liked to hang around with the boys for sports and computer game reasons. Okay, sure it was. Now, I heard plenty of talk about this uh, faceless demon. Eventually, the rumors and scary stories had me, a 12-year-old, believing in Slender. So being the smart and curious kid that I am, or that I was, I turned to the best place on the internet to get completely factual answers from genuine people, extreme sarcasm, Madison adds, uh, Yahoo Answers. Yesterday, I made an effort for you, Master Sucker, and for my fellow Time Suckers to find my original post to show everyone how naive and paranoid a preteen can be, and she found it. And this is so fucking good. Oh, Maddie, so glad you shared this with us. Here, here it goes. Here's what Maddie wrote. Is the Slender Man real? Please tell me. On Sunday, my friends went to Woodland Park at 11 p.m. to play tag for his birthday party. Dan and Joe sat behind the tennis court fence. They, then, they, then they saw a tall figure wearing a suit and, and hat with no face. It chased them down the hill and teleported, <laughs> and teleported to the road where they were going to run. My friend was pale and unable to speak for a while. They met up with their group and told them what happened. They walked up to the hill to check it out, and they found a dead squirrel that was twisted to death. The next day at school, Joe was still scared out of his mind and was feeling sick. I need to know what happened. Did he really see the Slender Man? Oh, oh, so good. Oh, soak it all up, Madison says. Turned out that, uh, that the day they all told me the story was also April Fool's Day. I didn't realize that until somebody told me on the forum a good week later. I guess my point is, says Madison, looking back, I realized that I was just as completely susceptible to any sort of peer pressure, believing in most things I hear and read, just like you said. I also think that a lot of kids can get into that headspace. Anyways, thank you so much for all your hard work. You inspire me to be a good person. Keep on sucking. Maddie. Fucking love this, Maddie. Oh, God. We are so funny when we're kids, man. Honestly, I remember being so scared about certain things. Uh, so scared. So exciting to worry about monsters when you were a kid, man. Really worry about them. I remember laying in bed, pulling covers over my head, totally convinced there was some demon under my bed about to kill me, about to grab my ass, take me to some awful dimension. I just knew it. Had to be true. And finally, uh, lizard, space lizard update. You know how much I love those. Numerous suckers wrote in with a lizard update. Uh, time suckers Ben uh, Sestak. At that kid text on Twitter, at wavybone121 on Twitter, at you can't find me dad on Twitter, and others let me know that some space lizard shit might be going down, or at least lizard stuff might be going down today during the solar eclipse in South Carolina. WLTX in West Columbia, South Carolina, has reported that the South Carolina Emergency Management Division posted on social media at SCEMD that lizard men may be more active during a solar eclipse. Now, this was a tongue-in-cheek post, but there is a real lizard man legend in South Carolina. The first lizard man was reportedly seen in Lee County, South Carolina in 1988 coming out of Escape or Swamp. Son of a bitch apparently jumped on top of 17-year-old Chris Davis's car, hit a swerve, speed up to shake that lizard bastard off. Bet the lizard Illuminati were not happy about that, man. Sounds like that swamp lizard probably went rogue. I feel like everybody, every family, you know, has got that one dipshit, doesn't follow the rules. It's probably no different for the space lizards, you know. They can't be all controlling our minds all the time. Probably a few of those lizards are lazy, unambitious, you know, rule breakers. They don't want to control our minds. They just want to hang out in some swamps, drink some moonshine, fuck with some locals, maybe bump uglies with some dirty old swamp chicks. Who knows? And that is all for this week's Time Sucker Updates. Thanks for listening to them. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. 
We all did. All right. Hope you liked the new format, everybody. Hope you liked it. Let me know. Uh, thanks for keeping this thing moving forward, moving along. Thanks for keeping it growing. Uh, and again, man, it's, it's making me uh, feel like there's a possibility I could do some really cool stuff with this coming up. Makes me want to work even harder on it. Uh, spread those new stickers around. Send me some pics to post on at Time Suck Podcast on social media. And, you know, most importantly, you know what I'm going to say. You can say with me. Keep on sucking. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.